have to do something about this wire i keep catching it i catch it every week it's on the wrong side of my head somehow <laughs> anyway hello willkommen bienvenue konnichiwa it's time for the armist inquisition yet again episode 175 on sunday the 14th of march i'm armish phil i'm armish man and i'm armish matt and uh, tonight's guest is a, a u.s air force veteran a retired assistant attorney general and the author of two books Incident at Devil's Den and uh, his new book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Terry Lovelace, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I appreciate being here. Yeah, it's good. I was saying before, I've been really looking forward to this because it's a fascinating story. And um, I was thinking also earlier, your story's probably not as well known this side of the pond and in Europe maybe as it is over in the States. So um, yes. I think we'd, you know, it'd be a good, good way to sort of go through it. Um I think a good starting point would maybe if you go uh, tell us a bit about your background and um, one one of the things that's striking about your story is your credibility, if you like, as a witness. So tell us a bit about yourself you. to start with. Sure, I graduated from high school in 1973 and enlisted in the United States Air Force um, for six years. I was a medic, an EMT, a first responder, whatever. The, I drove an ambulance. And I worked at Whiteman Air Force Base, which is still there today. It was a SAC base when I was there with uh, nuclear ICBMs and B-52s armed with nukes. And today it's home to the B-2 bombers. Uh, I was there for from 73 to 79. After my enlistment ended, I finished a undergraduate degree in psychology and a law degree from Western Michigan and made my career in the law. Uh, I was a civil servant. I was assistant attorney general for the U.S. Territory of American Samoa uh, in the South Pacific, which was a great gig mm-hmm. and wonderful people. Samoan people are wonderful people. Uh, from there, I went to the state of Vermont, uh, where I, I finished my legal career as state's attorney there in 2012 uh, and retired. So I... Uh, I couldn't tell this story while I was in the legal community, certainly not while I was working for government. Uh, it uh, would not have been accepted. Yeah, Assistant Attorney General is quite a whole high-profile job, isn't it? Um, is it, it can be. Is the, the role of the Attorney General deciding which cases get prosecuted? The Attorney General represents the state or the territory, uh, in my instance, So there are, you know, city and county prosecutors that that handle their own cases. In cases involving state law or regulatory cases, which was my forte when I was in Vermont, uh, I have some medical experience and experience with legal medical matters. So I was on their board of medical practice uh, where they regulate physicians, their licensing and that and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, a, it's quite a high-status role. And is this part of the reason, I, I take it, why you, you sort of suppressed your story until later life? 
It is. I, uh, I never told a soul. My wife and I, uh, she was with me then. We'll be married 47 years in March tomorrow, March 15th. <laughs> right. Yikes. Have you got anything? <laughs> I do. I do. I have a trip paid for. Oh, oh no. Right. Okay. I'm smarter than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to the story then. Lay, lay sure. it out for us what happened, Terry. Sure. Uh, one brief comment. You know, I would not have come forward with this story had it not been for uh, a routine x-ray that I had of my leg in 2012, and they discovered some foreign objects in my in my leg. Um, and you can see those x-rays. They're at uh, terrylovelace.com. And that was the real motivation to come forward. Uh, because that was validation that these things put their hands on me when I saw the x-rays. So You had no... Uh no notion that there is any foreign bodies inside you? I had no idea. Right. None. So. Now the, the, the camping trip. In uh, 1977, I had a, a, a friend, a guy I worked with, um, Toby, Tobias, and I worked together for three years. We worked the night shift in the emergency room from 11 o'clock uh, till 8 o'clock a.m., 11 o'clock p.m., 8 o'clock a.m., and... Uh, he came up to me one night and he said, Hey man, I got an idea. Let's go camping. And I, you know, I was a city kid. I had never been camping in my life. I knew he was a city kid. He was from Flint, Michigan. I, I, I suspected he'd never been camping in his life. So I'm like, you know, man, what's up with this? Where, where did this come from? And he said, well, you know, uh, he knew that I was an amateur photographer and I took a lot of photographs. I had a little dark room set up to develop black and white prints and he says, "Now nah, think about this. You know, he says, you can get some cool wildlife photos. And, uh, and he wanted to go down there to watch the night stars, to watch the night sky with no light pollution. Because he was, he was just fascinated with the night sky. He knew all the constellations. He could time satellites coming over. Anything space-related, man, was, was, was his specialty. So, and I wish we'd had time to, th- to talk about that, because I'd like to know the origin of his fascination with space. Right. Uh, be interesting. So we uh, we drove down to Devil's Den State Park in northwestern Arkansas, and I've done some some research, and it really is a spooky place with a kind of a kind of a scary background. Had I known the history of the place, I would not have caught. Well, you would think uh, so with that name, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a tip. Yeah, you know, I thought you know. Somewhere, it got this name for some reason. That's the exact mental exercise I went through. And, uh, man, you know, lots of people have been found dead, gone missing. Uh, there are two Native American tribes that lay claim to that area. And I found uh, uh, the Kahino and the Cado uh, tribe. And I found a Cado medicine woman who told me, quote, that's cursed land. My people will not hunt, fish, or camp there. We'll, we'll transit through it. We'll cut across it. Wow. But we won't stay there because it's cursed. So we uh, we decided we weren't going to stay in a campground. We wanted to find, uh, you know, a nice spot. We wanted to be real outdoorsmen, right, our first time out. We want to be, you know, and we didn't want somebody camping on the right and left side of us. We wanted to be out by ourselves in the woods. So we... Uh, we uh, trespassed across this chain in the road. And, I, you know, I was 22. Toby was 23. 
I thought, you know, what's the worst they're going to do? Throw us out, right? You know, no mm-hmm. big deal. We're not going, you know, we're not going to burn a forest down or, or leave a mess. So uh, we thought we were trans, uh, trespassing into like a nature preserve or something. And actually, the area where we stayed isn't even in Devilston State Park. It's federal land owned by the Bureau of Land Management and leased to some individual. Right. And it's a strange. Anyway, I'll get to that. We. Uh, we, we drove around, and it, and it was weird. My friend Toby is navigating, and we found our way to this, this plateau. And it was um, triangular in shape. It's still visible from Google Earth. Uh, and it was it's elevated. It's a plateau that's about level with the treetops all around. Wow. And it was, yeah, it was cool. It was absolutely perfect for camping. So we set up a little campsite, and, you know, we did all the fun stuff you do when you were camping. Because, hey, it was all new to us. You know, you barbecue hot dogs and all that stuff, and we did all that stuff. It was fun. And about 9 o'clock that evening, we're, we're kicked back laying on these inflatable air mattresses and uh, just having a pleasant conversation. And we have a campfire between us and a tent in back of us. And I had noticed that. Uh, just maybe 40 minutes earlier, 45 minutes earlier, we were having trouble communicating. I mean, I had to raise my voice to be heard because the noises from the forest, things like crickets and tree frogs and stuff that makes noise at night in the forest was so loud. And that went silent. And I know that sounds cliche. It sounds like out of a horror movie or something, but I swear to God, it's true. It really happened. And, you know, it wasn't only that it was quiet, it was still. I mean, we'd had a nice breeze we enjoyed, and that quit. That died. And it unnerved me, you know. And I asked my friend, like he's going to know, you know. I said, hey, man, is this is this normal? This, it just feels weird. It, it did. It unnerved me. And he blows it off. He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. He said, you know, the bugs, they'll come back. Nothing to worry about. So... You know, we kept talking, and um, but I couldn't shake the uneasy feeling. And then I noticed that um, he's fixated, looking at the horizon. He has his head turned to the left, looking toward the west. And he asked me, he said, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And I don't recall any lights. I mean, we were in a remote area of, of the forest. There, there, there were no lights anywhere. Uh, so I I couldn't see what he was looking at because his torso was in the way. I had to stand up and take a step back. And sitting on the western horizon, actually above the western horizon, there were three bright little stars uh, in, a, in a perfect triangle. And uh, it looked unnatural. You know, my friend knew the night sky. He knew that they weren't a constellation. They weren't, uh, they were artificial in some way. They weren't a natural formation. Mm. And uh, we're discussing what it could be. And I said, hey, man, you know, that could be an aircraft of some kind headed directly in our, directly toward us, and we won't be able to perceive, you know, perceive its motion until it moves by a degree or two. And he's like, okay, so we're watching. And um, they rotated. They turned like they were on an axis, and they rotated about 120 degrees uh, to the right. And what it did was that the, 
the triangle aligned itself with the base of the triangle parallel with the horizon, uh, with the apex pointed up, and it was too far above the horizon to have been lights from a, a parking lot or a train or something like that. Uh, this was definitely in the sky. Yeah. And while we're watching, it started to rise. It took off and started slowly to, to climb. And as soon as it did that, I had this sensation. And, I, and you know, I think this really speaks to the level of influence that these things can have over over us, over people. Uh, I felt this sensation of calm wash over me. And all of that feeling of being unnerved uh, and being anxious was all gone. And I felt, uh, I felt weird. I, I, I felt almost uh, disinterested. I mean, short of apathy. Uh, but my, I, was, uh, I felt more like, more like an observer, than a participant in what was going on. I, I know that sounds strange, but... Uh, Is that because it was so far away? No, I think that's because of their influence on us. I think uh, I think our responses were muted. We were both, we should have been, hey, look at that. We should have been, you know, what is this thing? You know, we, there should have been some dialogue between us. It was nothing. So at that uh, point, could you estimate how far the lights were away? Many miles. I, I would I miles. would guesstimate after seeing the size of it, it was many miles away, uh, but it was steadily headed in our direction. Right. And it climbed until it reached what I call a ceiling, maybe ten thousand feet, and it leveled off. While it was in a vertical climb, it leveled off to a flat plane, and stayed there for just a second, and then started a steady, steep dive into our direction. And we could see the apex of the triangle was pointed directly at us. We, we knew it was headed toward us. And, but, you know, we had no fear, no anxiety, no, um, not much of nothing, really. Uh, we're just watching this thing. And uh, as it gets bigger, you know, the points of light uh, expand. And we could see, because there were a trillion stars out that night, it was a beautiful night. And the area inside this triangle was jet black, where the uh, there was like a, a light blue glow all around it from the starlight. So we knew we were looking at one solid object, not three objects moving in unison. Yeah. And it, it, it glided in and leveled off at about, I'm guessing, 5,000 feet over the plateau, and then cruised, just cruised in and came to a stop over the meadow where we were, where we were camped, we were offset just a bit. It wasn't directly over our heads. Um, and, I, and I would estimate, and I think I, it's, it's very close, about 3,000 feet over our heads. If you'd like to see a drawing of this, uh, I did one, and it, it was done contemporaneous with the event. I did it in August of 1977. Um, and it's at uh, terrylovelace.com. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But we... Uh, we watched this thing, and what happened was it shined a light down from underneath this thing in center. There came a beam of light, and it was it was a visible white light, um, like a high-power searchlight that cuts through fog. You can see a visible column of white light. Yep. That, that's what this was like, uh, only it was about uh, six inches in diameter, but it was a perfect column. 
and we could follow it with our eyes all the way up to the to the ship. And uh, we heard no noise whatsoever. It was absolutely quiet. Uh, the lights on the tips of the triangle were still lit, but they had dimmed. Um, and this light came down and hit our campfire, right in the dead center of our campfire, and stayed there for about 60 seconds. And then just, like someone hits a switch, it just turned off. Right. And then uh, immediately afterward, there came this, like, laser beam. I mean, in 1977, lasers were were kind of a new thing. I mean, I'd seen them on television. I knew what they were. I'd never seen one in real life before. Uh, but from the same area underneath this thing and center, there came a beam, a, a laser beam, about the diameter of a, of a pencil, uh, and it was a bluish purple in color. And it would land at a, at some point in our campsite for like a tenth of a second, and then reappear in another place, and then. In, in this in this manner, it just danced all around the campsite. And it struck me in the chest a couple times. I didn't feel a thing, never felt a thing. I know it struck my friend. It struck all it struck us and all the things that we brought there. It right. struck the cooler, it struck his backpack, it struck my car, it struck the tent. So all the things that we brought with us, all the things associated with us, including ourselves, this this laser beam struck. And I I mean, I felt like this thing scanning us, you know? It's, it's checking us out. And rather and I, rather than floating around like a searchlight, this was like strobing in and out. Exactly. Right. That's exactly right. Um, and we, you know, we still had that weird, you know, muted emotions. Uh, and, you know, there was no conversation between us. The, the only... And that's, that's unusual. The only comment, I, my, my friend made a comment like, it's really moving now or something, something, you know, inane like that. Uh, and then we just, we're just watching this thing. And these lights, the uh, laser lights lasted maybe three minutes, maybe three minutes. And then like someone hits a switch, it turns off. And uh, we're sitting there. And it is so quiet. I mean, it's like it's like sitting in a sound booth. That that was the that was the uh, that was the vibe. And all of a sudden, we both transitioned from where we had been sedated before. Suddenly, we're sleepy, and all I wanted to do was close my eyes and go to sleep. And I think that was also their influence, of course. You know, we, we had worked the night shift for three years. This is 9 o'clock at night. I mean, you know, this was not, you know, we're 22 and 23 years old. 22 and 23-year-olds don't enjoy a nap. You know, I mean, you know, we, we want to be doing stuff, right? Yeah. So I, uh, I picked up my air mattress, and Toby did the same thing. He stood up, and he said, show's over, which I thought was an odd comment. Um, and I didn't reply. Uh, he went over and he threw his air mattress into the tent and fell on top of it. And I followed suit. I threw mine in the tent and fell on top of mine. And as soon as my head hit that plastic inflatable air mattress, I was out. And I wasn't asleep. I think I was unconscious. And that's, that's when they took us while we were in this unconscious state. So you went and got your air mattress and went to sleep while this thing was still over the plateau. 
which hanging over us by three thousand feet. Yes, which is it sounds unbelievable because doesn't it? it? You would think it would be the last thing you would do would be to take your eyes off the thing. That's right. Yeah, that's amazing. We were we were under its influence. Clearly, there's no doubt in my mind. And we woke up some hours later. Um, both of our watches, we wore wind-up mechanical watches, which were kind of the standard of the day, and they were integral to the job of being an EMT or a medical technician. And uh, both of our watches had stopped at 2.41. I mean, my minute, a minute apart. Toby's was 2.41, mine was 2.40 on the nose. Those watches never worked again. So we had no idea what time it was. I mean, afterwards we figured out that we woke up about an hour before sunrise I woke up because of these flashing lights through the tent. And through the canvas of this tent, there came these incredibly bright flashes of white and yellow light, and sometimes a little orange and a little greenish maybe, but predominantly white and yellow. And they were at odd intervals, and they were just incredibly bright. Uh, And they would last for uh, a millisecond and light up the inside of that tent, like just like insane. And... I woke up, and you know what I'm thinking. I, I, I don't have my wits about me when I wake up, and I'm thinking, you know, where am I? Oh, yeah, we're camping. That's right. And I see these lights, and I'm thinking, you know, some park ranger's truck with some kind of overhead flashing lights, maybe, you know, trying to think of some kind of logical explanation. And then I also heard this weird noise. It was a, uh, I refer to it as a droning noise. And what it was, was it was a um, like a mechanical sound. If you've ever stood next to a, a large piece of industrial machinery or like a diesel locomotive that's idling, there's this sound, and it doesn't hurt your ears. It's not like it's so loud, but you can feel it in your chest. It's, mm. it's powerful, you know, like a bass speaker at a concert. It's, you can feel it. Yep. And um, I sat up, and I saw that my, my boots had been unlaced. Because I didn't bother to undress. I left my my boots. I was wearing combat boots, T-shirt, jeans. I sat up, and I saw that my boots had been unlaced almost all the way down. And that didn't frighten me, but it puzzled me because I would never have left them like that. You know, the military, they teach you to take care of your feet. So, I mean, my boots would have been laced up. My boots would have been off, one or the other, but not not like this. So I'm annoyed, and I, I pull them off, and I find out, my socks are on sideways. <laughs> and I didn't know then that we had been undressed and they had redressed us. Oh, my word. <laughs> so I put them on correctly. I laced them up. I turned my attention to my friend. And in one of these brilliant flashes of white light, I could see that he'd been crying. He's, he's crouched down on his knees, and he's looking through a flap in the tent. Uh and Toby uh, was black, and I could see against his dark skin the saline in the tears fluoresce with each flash of bright light. So he had a very clear tear track down the side of his face. It was very visible. And that scared me because I couldn't imagine what would make this man cry. And I asked him, I said, Toby, man, what is it? Is it park rangers? What's out there? And he just said, shh, they're still out there. And I'm like, who's still out there? And it's obvious he's not going to answer me. So I pull back my flap of the tent just a couple inches because now I'm scared. You know, all that, all that, uh, 
all that being semi-sedated, that, that stuff's all gone. Now I'm absolutely scared out of my wits. And I look out of this flap in the, the tent, and I'm seeing the metal in front of me. And here is this giant triangle that has descended from 3,000 feet, and it is now hanging 30 feet over the metal. And that's why, that's why these lights were so intense. Uh, and we were, thankfully, we were offset for, from it just a bit. Uh, but we could see the size of it, side of it and see the actual depth of it. And it was absolutely enormous. I mean, it looked like, a, like some kind of big medical building or office building. It was just huge. What could you, Did you have any idea of, like, the texture or the finish? Was it, like, matte? Was it shiny? Was it rough, smooth? It was matte black, and it had windows here and there, windows, like in, like an apartment complex or something. And at the very top, the top of it curled outward a little bit, and there was a panel of glass that ran across the entire length of the structure. Um, and it looked like an observation deck of some kind. And we could see shadowy figures moving around and back. We could never make them out. The second thing that I saw was what I took to be kids, maybe a dozen, maybe 15 children. Um, and I asked my friend, I said, Toby, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of night? What's going on? And he says, he said, Terry, man, those ain't no little kids. Look at them. They're not human beings. And he said, don't you remember? They took us and they hurt us. And as soon as he said that, I had flashes, just bits of memory from being inside that thing. And I've never had a clear linear memory of what happened to us. I just have bits and pieces of being inside this thing. Um, but that, I was absolutely terrified. I was absolutely out of my wits with terror. And I, I, I saw these little guys walking around and I'm afraid that we're going to cough or sneeze or something and draw their attention and they're going to come over and do God knows what, but these, these uh, figures are still in the ship, not on the meadow. No, they're walking around on the meadow outside. Oh my God. <laughs> they are walking around. They're paired up in like twos and threes and they're just meandering around this meadow. And it's not like they're looking down, looking for something. They're like walking around like tourists, just kind of looking around. Oh, and uh, they were very unusual. They were all about the same height. I, I was a fair distance away, so I couldn't see them as clearly from there as I would like to have had seen them. But they were about three, maybe three and a half feet tall. They all walked with a very distinctive gait. They walked as if their legs had been hinged to move backward with each step, just maybe an inch or two. I know that's hard to visualize. But what it did was it, it made the it gave the impression that when they moved their leg forward, they were like dragging their leg forward. A very strange walk. Um, that's the best way I can describe it. We could see that they were they were gray. They were all gray. I, I, I didn't see any huge black eyes. So if they had eyes, uh, they weren't exaggerated like you see in the motion pictures. Uh, but they walk with this distinctive gait, and uh, their heads were large, disproportionate to, to their torsos. Their torsos were very tiny. Their, their limbs were disproportionately long uh, compared to their torso and their overall makeup. And while we're watching these, 
things walking around, uh, another light clicks on. And this was a co another column of white light, only this was a broad column of light, about, I'm guessing it's going to be about 30 feet wide, because it was about the same length sideways as this thing was vertically above the meadow. And as soon as this light came on, they all, in unison, turned their attention toward this light. And it just started to meander over to it. They didn't run, they didn't hurry, but they all made a steady pace back toward this light. As they got there, uh, we saw the first two little guys step into this light. And when they did, they, they pixelated out in the light. They just dissolved. And within about 20 seconds, they were gone. And then the next pair would step in, and then maybe a, you know, a trio would step in. And same thing, 20, 25 seconds, they pixelate out, and they're gone. So we watched until the last two stepped in. And once they were gone, the light shut down. And as soon as it shut down, that, uh, that droning noise that we heard uh, stopped also. And it, it was quiet again. And we watched this thing take off. And it didn't, it didn't take off like a rocket ship, you know. It just, it just lifted off like a hot air balloon, slowly. And as it went up, the higher it got, the faster it went. And we saw it move from three points of light to a single point of white light, and then it was gone. Straight up. Straight up, yes. And and I was I was terrified. I we were both like two terrified little kids. I mean, I was afraid. I was in favor of staying inside the tent until daytime. And my friend wanted to leave. Mm. I felt that we would be vulnerable in the sixty feet that we'd have to run to the car. And I didn't want to be out there and be vulnerable. All I had over my head was a piece of canvas, but I felt like it provided me with cover. Um, and, and I didn't want to be out there. And, you know, to this day, I will not cut across a piece of open ground. I will walk a mile and a half around if I have to, but I will not be out in the open alone. Uh, I'll have a panic attack. I, I, I feel vulnerable. Wow. So, so what what happened after that then? You see, you, how did you get back to the base and stuff? My my friend said, "Look, we got to go." You know, he said, "We're not going to stay here till daylight. We're going to go. Let's go now." Mm -hmm. And I said, "All right." We did the one, two, three, go thing, and we <laughs> we darted to the car, and we got in the car, and uh, we realized we were in a lot of pain, uh, and they had hurt us. I was burnt. Uh, I had like the worst sunburn I'd ever had in my life. Uh, but I had it everywhere. And I never took off my shirt or my pants. I never took off my boots for that, for that reason matter. And, but I was burned uh, under my arms, the soles of my feet. I mean, I was burned everywhere. And I never blistered, you know, or never, never, my skin never peeled. Uh, but it was a very painful burn. And I also had... Uh, what doctors call a flash burn to my eyes. What it is is it's, it's essentially a sunburn to the cornea of your eye, uh, and they call it a flash burn. It's what, what an arc welder would get if they didn't wear that hood over their, over their face while they worked. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, very painful. It feels, you know, you're photophobic, and it feels like you have sand in your eyes. Mm -hmm. um, 
How how long did those those things last for? My eyes cleared up in about four days. Uh, we were hospitalized when we got back to base. Uh, I we both lived on base housing on the base itself. So we got back to base, and you know we worked at the hospital, so we knew everybody there. And you know medical people take care of their own. You know we were well cared for, uh, and our wives both took us to the hospital. And uh, whatever they did to me. They gave a double measure to my friend because he was hurt far worse than I was. Obviously, his skin didn't tan, but he was burned. Uh, and he was in more pain than I was. And we had an incredible thirst. I, I was so thirsty. We were, as a matter of fact, that was our admitting diagnosis was acute dehydration. I was going to say, what did the, you know, your colleagues at the hospital say when you turned up with these symptoms? They said, What? Did you get into? How did you hurt yourself like this? And we had the most thorough medical exams, uh, but they separated us. And um, at the end of my of my uh, exam, uh, four people came into the room. It was the base commander, the hospital commander, who I knew well, and two guys in civilian clothing that I did not recognize. And they came in, and they asked the doctor to excuse himself. And he walked out of the room, and they shut the door to the exam room. And the hospital commander was the only one that spoke. And he said, Sergeant Lovelace, you're to have no contact with Sergeant Tobias in any way, shape, or form. He says that means no, not verbally, not in writing, not by telephone. You're not to try to communicate with him through any third party. You're not to give him anything. He's not to give you anything. If you happen to run across him while you're in the base exchange shopping, you're to immediately turn around and rock, walk in the opposite direction. And on and on and on with this bizarre no-contact order. And he said, and Sergeant, if you disobey this order, there'll be consequences. Do you understand me? You know, I understood consequences. Um, the, the, you know, but the, but the reasoning, the rationale behind it, no, I, I didn't understand at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they knew. Somehow they knew, how, and I know that they knew. How far is the, I, the, sorry, sorry, how far is the base from uh, the, the plateau where you camped? Six and a half hour drive, <laughs> so a couple hundred miles. Right. Yeah. And, the- and here's how I know that they knew. My second night of hospitalization, I knew I was going to be going home the next day, and I had 30, they gave us both 30 days off duty to recover. Um, and that, that evening, my night nurse came in with an injection for me and two guys followed her into my room and they were dressed in blue business suits, you know, with a tie and, and, um, but these guys were, were cops. They were policemen and they had their suit coats were open and they, I could see they were wearing a shoulder holster with a sidearm and, and they, they carried themselves with that air of authority the, like a police detective does. I don't know how to explain that. I I had never had any experience with the police before this, so this was kind of new to me. Um, and I'm wondering, what, you know, why are these guys wanting to talk to me? What did I do? And then I thought, well, maybe we did burn down the forest or something. You know? Uh, so she came over to give me the injection, and he, this older guy, maybe in his 50s, said, if that's going to sedate Sergeant Lovelace, it's going to have to wait because we need to ask him some questions. 
and they pulled out their credentials and they showed her badges. They were from the OSI. The United States Air Force has a security police, and then a special branch within the security police is called the Office of Special Investigations, and they're the investigative branch of the Air Force. So they showed me their credentials. One guy was the older guy was a major, the younger guy was a captain. The older guy did all the talking. He read me my rights under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And that scared me. What's that? How does that differ from your normal rights that you read when you're arrested? Uh, They're a little bit different under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Uh, But they're basically giving you the right to counsel, the right to remain silent, uh, those, those basic rights that we take is fundamental, you know, very similar to yours. You know, our legal system is based on yours. Yeah. And that's what they taught me at school. So yeah. uh, read me my rights. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't have the benefit of a law degree. I didn't have the benefit of life experience. I'm 22 years old. You know, I, I don't I'm thinking if I protest, you know, I'm going to look guilty of something. I don't know what. Uh, so I thought cooperation is the best thing I could do. Um and I, I uh, he asked me a ton of questions. What, are, what were you doing down there? Now, you know, when we left, we didn't take anything with us. We left the cooler, the tent, the air mattresses, everything. We left there. And my friend's backpack had his address on it and phone number, and he lived on the base. So if the park rangers found that, that would have been an easy trail back to discover that we were actually airmen from Whiteman Air Force Base. And that's an assumption on my part. Um, But this guy said, you know, the park rangers found your camp, and it looks like you're set up to come back. And uh, he says, you know, i just curious, what do you guys got going on down there? What what, what are you guys doing down there that you made this little camp? And, you know, you trespassed on the federal land. That's a crime. Did you know that, Sergeant? And I said, sir, look, we had no intention of hurting anything or making a mess. We were just uh, looking for a nice place to camp. Um, and he proceeded with this interrogation and, you know, afterward, you know, years later, I, I worked as a prosecuting attorney for a while and became familiar with police interrogation techniques. And, you know, in retrospect, I, I could realize that what he was doing was all theater. It was pretty much for intimidation. And, uh, and he succeeded. <laughs> I was thoroughly intimidated. And, um, he asked for permission to search my car. He asked for permission to search my home. And I gave it to him. Uh, and I thought, you know what? I don't have anything to hide, you know? And uh, um, so this lasts for about 35, 40 minutes. And, he, and the, the captain left. And it's just me and this major in this room. And this major was from uh, Alabama or Mississippi, Louisiana, somewhere in that Southern American region. And he had a very distinctive accent. Uh, if you've ever spoke with Calvin Parker, um, or heard Calvin Parker speak about his abduction experience. It, he, he had very much like Calvin's. And he shut the door to my room, and he held his hand against the door, and my bed was right next to the door, and he leaned over, and he whispered in my ear. He said, son, I know, and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something while you were out there, and I think you know what I mean. And, and I didn't answer him. I didn't know how to answer him. Toby and I had made a pact uh, on, the, on the way home that we would never mention the UFO. You know, we weren't going to lie to anybody, but we would tell them. And it's the truth. 
We went to bed. We were feeling kind of kind of funny, kind of funny. Maybe ten o'clock at night. We woke up early, felt worse. Uh, we felt so bad. We just drove back home. Didn't care about leaving this stuff there. It was all expendable. So, when I told him that, uh, he said, "I don't believe you." So, because I didn't answer his question, he kind of gets a little more. His tone gets a little more firm, and he says. Oh, yeah, he says, I know you know what I'm talking about. And he said, all I want to know is how many photographs of it did you take? And, you know, without thinking, I blurted out, sir, I didn't take a single picture of it. (laughs) And he just smiled. (laughs) And he says, son, I'm going to need your camera and your film anyway. (laughs) So I think they thought that I had a 36 exposure black and white roll of film of this thing. That's what I think. And, you know, the truth is um, a lot of crazy things happened. I left my camera at home. Now, my friend Toby had his camera, and it was in a backpack sitting right next to him while we're watching this thing glide in and... You know, we're watching the whole thing. And the thought of taking a photograph never crossed my mind. It never crossed Toby's mind. And again, I think that's influence on some level because if you've ever known anyone who really, really, really is into photography, you know how annoying they can be because they want to photograph everybody and everything. Yeah. Uh, and I was like that. Um, but the idea of taking a photograph of this thing never crossed my mind. And I don't understand that. So... Yeah, they knew. They knew what we saw. There's no question in my mind that they knew. Um, and um, the orders to um, to stay away from Tolby, was, were they time-limited? No, they were not. They were open-ended. Now, what they did was they, they we could have no contact with one another. They transferred me to a supply group for a little while, and they cut him orders to go to Japan, I mean, at light speed. It was a couple of weeks and he was gone. Um, and, you know, something had changed. When we went through this event, we came out of this different people. Uh, we, were two, we were two different people than we were when we went down there. I think when we went down there, we were like a couple of kids. Uh, and we came back, we were absolutely adults. And uh, it was a life, life-changing event. One of the odd things that happened was um, our relationship changed. I, I didn't want anything to do with this guy, and I, and I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't process that. I couldn't understand it. I don't understand it to this day. But I found out that it's not that uncommon. Um, there's a gentleman named Robert Hastings who wrote a famous book called Nukes and UFO UFOs and Nukes about. Uh, military people on nuclear bases that see things and how the, the forces in charge will separate those people and not let them hang together. But, you know, we had a six-and-a-half-hour trip back to base, and human nature, you know, two people go through this life-altering, unimaginable event. We should have been debriefing it. We should have been talking about it. We should have been, man, did you see what I see? And what are those things? And, we, you know, we should have been back and forth engaging in that, validating each other's experience. And we didn't do that. Um, I think the only conversation we had on the way back was our, our agreement that we would not uh, not tell them that we saw a UFO. Wow. 
I mean, could you put that that down to shock? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Because that's yeah. my, you know, when you were describing as the thing came, sort of that calmness that came over you as you first saw the thing approaching and the sort of mental attitude. That The first thing that comes into my mind is like, it's it's shock. You know this thing is unnatural that's approaching. It's almost like a, a helplessness, some sort of fear response, but you feel that it's something external. Absolutely do. You know, I mean, it's not... I studied psychology for four years, and I mean, uh, you know, I understand a little bit about, uh, you know, fight or flight, you know, uh, you know, our human reaction to uh, perceived uh, existential threat of some kind. And, uh, um, you know, also there's that need as human beings, I think, to, to, to debrief you know, to talk about it, to each one validate the other person's uh, experience and, and bolster, yeah, you really saw that, man. That really happened. Mm. And, you know, it was, it was, it, I saw Toby one more time. And even though we were ordered to have no contact, and even though my feelings about him had changed somewhat, I did want to say goodbye to him because he was going to be gone. He was going to Japan. So we're coming home from the grocery store. And we both live on base just a few blocks from one another. And I asked my wife, I said, swing by Toby's house. I want to run in and say goodbye to him. She was driving. And she said, Terry, don't mess with these OSI people. You know, they scare me. I'm like, I know, I know. They scare me too. But, you know, I'll be in there four minutes, four minutes. I just want to shake the guy's hand. And I thought that by doing this, I could come to some kind of closure with this thing and, 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 and get some level of peace. Um, but it didn't work out that way. Um, she stopped the car, and I ran up to the door. Now, this is the same doorway I've walked through a 100 times before. And I did what I usually do, and that was that I, I knocked three times on the door real loud, opened the door because uh, it was never locked, and I said, hey, guys, it's me. And his wife walked by me, and, and they, were, they were moving. They were boxing up things, getting ready for their relocation. And she walked past me with a hard look and said, you're not supposed to be here. And, uh, I mean, here this woman, you know, she and my wife were best of friends. You know, this woman, you know, six weeks earlier, we, we sit down and laugh and, you know, we were friends. And I said, look, I'm not here for a confrontation with anyone. I just want to say goodbye to Toby and wish you guys well. And Toby had heard our, our conversation. As he came out of his bedroom and walked up the hallway, and he was... Um, he was a wreck. I mean, I know he was moving, uh, and I could cut him some slack for that, but he was always very meticulous about his appearance. You know, he was the guy who always had his hair cut within regulation. He always had on a, you know, a starch uniform and, uh, always had his shoes shined. And, and I was a slob, you know, but he was, he was just absolutely everything had to be just, just so. And, uh, he walked out of the bedroom and his hair was all wonky and, uh, he hadn't shaved. And uh, his, his, he was wearing dirty, his T-shirt was dirty, his pants were dirty, he was barefoot. And uh, um, he walked up to me, and I felt, it felt uncomfortable to see him again. I, I thought it would feel natural, but it didn't. It felt uncomfortable on some level. And he walked up to me, and Toby was about six inches shorter than I am. And he looked up at me, and he said, it happened, didn't it, Terry? 
And I said, yes, my brother, it really happened. And you're not losing your mind. It really happened. And I'm looking down at him, and his eyes are bloodshot, and I could smell liquor on his breath. Now, this is a guy, I mean, we played cards together, we'd barbecue, you know. I, I, I never knew this guy to drink more than a can of beer, maybe a can and a half. You know, he's not a drinker. Um, but this wasn't beer, this was liquor of some kind. And when I told him that it really happened, he said, yeah, but why us? And I broke my gaze with him. I looked down at my shoes, and I just felt panicked. And I said, "Man, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have an expletive clue." Uh, and I ran out of the door and got back in the car and felt uh, very unsettled for a couple of hours. And um, it wasn't the peace that I hoped it would be. And was, so, and was that the last oh, contact you had with him? That was the last face-to-face I ever had with him. Yes. He had a very hard. He had a very hard go of it. Uh, he uh, he and Tammy ultimately divorced. She moved back to the states with their children, and uh, some years later, she got a hold of my wife, and uh, she said that she and her husband were going to be driving through Michigan, near Detroit, and ask us if we'd like to get together. Uh, you know, Toby's ex and her new husband. And my wife said, yeah, that'd be great. Let's all get together, you know, talk about old times, bring pictures of the kids, right? So they stopped by our house, and uh, we went out. We had a nice dinner. And, you know, I wanted to talk about Toby. That's what I wanted to talk about. And this was a little bit awkward because here's her new husband. So, um, um, but, I, you know, I danced around the subject as well as I could. Uh, and, I, and I said, so, and she told me that Toby... Uh, was discharged early. She's not sure of what the circumstances of his discharge was, but he was discharged from the military early and went back to live with his father in uh, Flint, Michigan. And she was living in in the Los Angeles area in California. And uh, she had custody of the two kids. And she said that um, Toby, you know, he, he didn't go to bars. Um, he didn't really drink during the daytime. But she said that when nighttime rolled around, he would just pound liquor, maybe an hour, two hours before bedtime, just pound alcohol. And I I could relate to that. Um, I had my struggles too. And, you know, um, sleep was hard to come by. It still is. You know, when you're asleep, you're vulnerable. When you when you shut your eyes, that's when the monsters can come in, right? And uh, I still sleep with a light on. Wow. This is heavy, Terry. Yeah, it is. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you: I don't know if there's any um, if there's any means to this, but you described the the meadow, the plateau, and the meadows being triangular. Yeah, and, the, and the ship, if you like, is triangular. Is that yes. significant, do you think? Yes, I think that's significant. And what I think is very significant is that, you know, I never bothered to look for this meadow because I was I just made the assumption that there would be 40-year-old mature trees all over it. You know, because unless somebody goes up there and cuts the grass, there are going to be 40-year-old mature trees. This is afterwards. 
looking this for the men afterwards. afterwards. This was in 2017 when I, when I was writing the book. Um, yeah, I didn't bother. I talked to some people down there in the area. Uh, there were some strange stories about some weird disappearances. Um, and let me know if we have time, and I'll, and I'll go into a couple of those. But um, the, um, the metal, like I said, is located on federal land. And it's still just a dirt road. It's not paved. But the top of the metal, uh, I, I had a picture from Google Earth that I put on Facebook. And a, uh, a friend of mine down in Alabama who's a landscaper blew this image up. And uh, sent me a message back and said, this land is, somebody cuts the grass up here. And he said, I can see tractor marks. He says, I know what they, he told me that they use a brush hog, a specific type of machine pulled by a tractor that cuts the grass. And I said, that's very interesting. So, I mean, the grass was cut when we were there. Why would the United States government pay to burn gas to cut the top of a plateau in the middle of nowhere that serves no purpose, that has not, doesn't even have a paved road to it. Yeah. Um, one more thing about the, the plateau. Is it a perfect, is it an equilateral triangle? No, it's a rough triangle. A rough triangle. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, not, it's not a perfect triangle. Um, now, you, when you talk about it being cut and maintained, well, it's maintenance, isn't it? That's maintenance. It is indeed. You must have. You must have. You've obviously thought about this. You must have some theories about why this plateau is maintained in this manner. You know, I do. I have some thoughts, uh, but I'll stress that they're only assumptions on my part. Um, but I kind of draw the conclusion that it's there is a landing pad. I, I, I believe it is, uh, and I believe that's why they keep it cut. And I think they come and go from there. And I think our government knows about it. I mean, certainly our Air Force knows about it. Um, they knew what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Do you think, you know, the um, the injuries you described, the sort of the sunburn and the, the damage to your eyes, um, as far as your research goes, is this a common thing? No, I wouldn't say common. Well, not but common, not a, but as far as, abdu- but, you know, these uh, experiences go. The yeah, you know, what's interesting is, is in my first book, I put an email address in the back of the book, and I say, look, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a therapist, I can't give you legal advice or medical advice, but if you've had an experience and you'd like to share it with me, I would love to hear it. Um, and I promise you absolute anonymity, unless you want, unless you want to take your story to the world. And that's why I wrote the second book. Half of the second book is stories that these people mailed me. Uh, I've had to date over 1,600 emails from people. I expected to get 50 emails, you know? <laughs> uh, no, it, uh, and people tell me most amazing abduction stories. And what I did was I, I, I tried to be analytical about this, and I took all of these experiences, and I had people email me with stories about UFOs, aliens, abductions, near-death experiences, ghosts, all kinds of things. And I, uh, I tried to put everything into a category, and then once into a category, I grouped them all together, and I looked for commonalities between them all. 
And one of the commonalities in abductees is, is burning. It's not real common, but it's happened to other people. You know, one of the common, one of the most common things I found surprised me, and that is that most of the people that have been abducted or had an, an intimate experience, let's say, with a UFO or UFO inhabitants, tell me that between the ages of four and five, they had a funny dream. And the dream may even be nonsensical, but they can remember this dream like it was yesterday, and they've remembered it all their life. And I say, you know, I ask every one of them, well, can you tell me about that Christmas? What did you get for Christmas? What did you get for your birthday? Where did you go on vacation with your family? They don't remember, but they can remember the stupid dream from when they were five years old. And those people, that seems to be a common quality. And, and I, I, you know, I think these things are with you for a lifetime. I, I do. I don't think it's a one-on. I mean, you know, somebody might see a silver thing dart across the sky. Um, but if, if they want to keep, you know, like, you know, we put these things in my life. If they want to steady you or follow you for a lifetime, you know, you're their subject. You know, you're tagged like a lion in a Serengeti plane. You know, they got their, their thing inside you. We haven't even got to that yet. Mm. I know. Already, and we're already nearly an hour. But, yeah, you just hinted at it there. The um, the x-ray that you had in, was it 2017? Uh, 2012. 2012, sorry. And this yes. was the uh, the push or the, the motivation, if you want to, because you've kept all this to yourself from 1977 through to 2012. That's and, right. And it was this x-ray that was the trigger. So we can't, we can't leave without talking about this, can we? I, I can cut to the chase <laughs> and tell you what's, I can tell what's important. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, uh, I couldn't bear weight on my right leg. And I told my wife, I got to go to the hospital. I got to have this checked out. Now the things that are in my leg, that you can see on the website, they're not related to that pain. That pain was caused by a benign, what's called a baker's cyst. Um, nothing to do with baking. It's just, that's the name of it. And, you know, you catch it like you catch a cold. It'll um, be painful to walk. Uh, your knee will be painful for a couple of weeks. It always resolves on its own. Um, it's not cancerous ever. It's just something you get, right? Uh but then these things above my knee and below my knee, they called a radiologist down to look at them. And if you look at the structure above my knee, um, it's square, about the size of a fingernail, and it has two wires attached to it that run up my leg. Uh, and he says, I don't know what this is. But he says, it looks to me like you must have picked up something, uh, transference through an automobile accident or some kind of violence. Uh, for this thing to be buried this deep into your fascia and in your tissue. And he said, I bet you got a dandy scar. And I said, doctor, I don't have a scar. And he says, you got to have a scar. He says, you can't violate the integrity of the skin and get something that buried this deep in your body and there not be a scar. Uh, and I said, well, take a look. And he did, he did, he wanted to. And I, I took off my pants again and he examined my leg under a light and he was obviously shaken. And I said, well, doctor, let me ask you, if I may, how often is it that you see an object like this inside a human body and there not be a corresponding scar? And he said, never. He said, I've never seen this before. 
I said, I have no idea how this thing got into your body. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it got there. Um, and then below my knee, um, he put that x-ray to the side and popped another x-ray in the view box. And he says, you've got some bones in your lower leg. And I thought, well, yeah, isn't it supposed to be that way? And, uh, <laughs> and he says, no, he says, and he pointed them out to me. And they're, they're in the middle of my calf muscle. There is a florette pattern of bones arranged. And he said, I can tell they're bones. On x-ray film, I can tell that these things are the consistency of human bone. You know, they're not made out of plastic or something. They're bone tissue. And he said, but he said, you know, I've never seen a bone sprout in the middle of muscle tissue before, much less have half a dozen of them sprout and arrange themselves in a symmetrical pattern. <laughs> he said, that's new. <laughs> that's new too. So uh, his parting words were, you have a very unusual knee, Mr. Lovelace. <laughs> so Now, I mean, my obvious question to that is, I mean, have you not thought about going under the knife and having these things removed? Oh, immediately. That is absolutely what I wanted to do, was to have them removed the sooner the better. Because I, I imagine as soon as you were told this, you immediately put two and two together and thought, this is from 77. Yeah, I, I did. Well, you know, what, what, it'll make more sense to tell you this. I, in 1979, I started running uh, to kind of keep my weight in check, and uh, I, I liked it. You know, I didn't run marathons or anything, but I'd run, you know, four or five miles a day. But I ran nearly every single day, uh, year-round. And uh, every time I would run, at about the two-mile mark, I mean, you know, give or take 50 yards, but right around the two-mile mark, there was a spot above my knee and lateral toward the right that would go completely numb. And it was, it was odd. It was numb and kind of itched. Uh, weird sensation, and I could take a safety pen, and I could delineate the outline of the thing. It was a perfect little circle, about uh, you know about an inch in diameter, and that that uh, numb sensation would fade about thirty minutes after my run, and then be gone. So I asked my doctor about it, uh, nineteen eighty two, and she says. Well, it sounds like some type of, quote, histemic reaction of some kind. She said, I, I wouldn't worry about it. If it doesn't affect your, your run, I wouldn't worry about it. So I didn't. But as soon as I saw that x-ray, I realized that that spot on my leg that would go numb when I ran, that it was directly over that foreign object in my knee. So, and you know, like I said, that, that validates they put their hands on me uh, and did something more intimate than that to me. Um, and I had trouble processing that. I had trouble living with that. So I wanted to see, a, I saw a surgeon right away. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem that I had is, is that I have a cardiac history. I have a bad heart. I've had a couple heart attacks. I've had a, uh, a by bypass surgery. I had a stent put in in 2011. So I go to the doctor and in, in this country, the standard of care is this. If you've got something in your leg, like let's say, like the doctor, like the cardiologist told me, look, you know, I've got half a million veterans out there that have pieces of shrapnel in their body from, you know, Korea or Vietnam or Iraq or wherever. Sorry. And they, they want that out of their bodies yesterday too. Mm. Uh, but she said the standard of care is 
if it's been there, it's been there a while, and it's not disturbing you, there's no signs of infection, which is not, she said, we leave it lay because the risk of surgery and anesthesia, the risk of infection is greater than the risk of letting it lie. It's a risk versus benefit analysis. Mm. And they would not give me a clearance letter. They eventually they were removed, uh, but they weren't removed. They were removed by ET. Right. November of 2017, I, I woke up and I had a puncture wound at the top of my knee and intuitively I knew that they came and taken this thing out of my leg. And I told my wife, I said, because I was talking to the surgeon down in Tijuana, Mexico about removing it for me. So uh, I think they wanted, they wanted to come and take it back before it fell in the hands of a terrestrial scientist. I know that sounds far-fetched, but that's my belief. Uh, and even more disturbingly, it's like they're monitoring, monitoring your conversations <laughs> and your movements about getting it yes, removed. that is disturbing. And I, 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 went, I, I found a, uh, a doctor at chiropractic. Do you have chiropractors? Yeah, yeah. Do a course? Okay. Uh, I found this doctor of, of chiropractic, uh, a chiropractor, who um, I went in to see him. And what I did was I took copies of my x-rays on copy paper. I had them rolled up in a tube in my hand. And I said, uh, yeah, I need to see the doctor. I didn't have an appointment. He was busy. I waited like 45 minutes. I finally I get in to see him, and he says, what can I do for you? I said, well, I got this puncture wound. It was weird. I had a deep puncture wound. Uh, up on my thigh and had a weird bruise pattern to it that didn't come out till about 36 hours later. It was on both legs. So I don't know if I had something in my left leg maybe I wasn't even aware of. But there was a puncture wound. It never bled, but you could see that it was deep. Um, so he looked at this puncture wound and he says, how did you get this? <laughs> and I, uh, I said, doctor, well, I'm going to be honest with you. In 1977, while I was active duty in the United States Air Force, I believe that I was abducted by aliens while I was camping, and uh, I believe that they put these things in my body while I was camping. And I think they came and they took their merchandise back last night. And he says, all right then. (laughs) Oh, my God. And uh, he grabs me by the elbow, and he's escorting me. He says, I don't think we can help you. He's escorting (laughs) me toward the front door. But you know what? I know. I know that this guy looks at 100 x-rays a week. So I took both pieces of paper in my hands and I did this and I held it up to his face. And I said, look at this. And he stopped in his tracks and he looks at them and he takes them from me. He says, follow me. And I went back into his office and he shut the door and must have locked it. People are knocking at the door. His phone is ringing. (laughs) He sits down at his desk and he puts the two two copies on copy paper, the x-rays, puts them in front of me and says, tell me about these. Tell me the three-minute story. Tell me about these. And I did. And uh, he said, I don't have x-ray equipment here. I use a freestanding radiology clinic about a mile down the road. And he said, I'll write an order for an x-ray. And he said, and I'll pay for it. And I'll read it for you. But you promised me, because I told him I was writing a book. He said, you promised me never use my name or my clinic's name. And I said, that's a deal, doctor. Yeah. Uh, I still have the x-rays to this day. So I I went down. I got my x-ray. You know, they they gave me the film. I ran to the car, took them out, held them up to the sunshine. 
Sure enough, the thing above my knee is gone. Dropped him off at his office, like he asked. Uh, and he called me back that evening and said, well, did you see your x-rays? And I said, yes, I did. It looks like they came and they got, got these things out of my leg. And he says, yeah, but did you see what they left you? And I said, no, I didn't see, I, I don't know how to read an x-ray. I didn't see anything else unusual. And he told me, and I, and I saw it later. Matter of fact, he gave me the films. I am in possession of them now. There are two tiny wires uh, about a, a centimeter long, parallel with one another. And you can see them very plainly looking at x-ray film. I, uh, there's a picture of them in the back of my book, but it's kind of grainy. You really can't tell. But there are two tiny wires there uh, right next to my femur. And I said, doctor, let me ask you this. You know, you obviously kind of have a clue what's going on here. And let me, if these things are so, so smart, why would they be so inept as to leave these wires in my body? And he said, they're not inept. You don't get it. He says, they don't do anything by accident. He says, what they did was they just gave you an upgrade. Oh, my God. He said, those two wires probably serve the same function as what they put in you in 1977. He said, look how far <laughs> we've advanced since 1977. But he said, yeah, they're still following you. Holy cow. You and I asked him, I said, how do you know this stuff? And he says, I just do. He wouldn't tell me. But, you know, he's either been taken or he's seen this phenomenon in other people. Hell's bells. You got a firmware update. Yeah. <laughs> well, to, uh, Terry, we've, we've gone, we've blown past an hour already. We could talk to you all night about mm. this because it's absolutely fascinating. Um, but we're going to have to wrap up. We'll love to have you back later, you know, further down the line. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, sure. and carry on. Um, the website, terrylovelace.com, isn't it? Yes. And my books are on Amazon only. So. On Amazon. Yeah. All the links will be in the uh, show notes, eavesdroppers anyway. So if you want to check out Terry's website, his book, please do. It's a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. I encourage you all to do that. And, um, We'll, we'll sign off this part of the show. Thanks so much for your time, Terry. Just um, hang on the line for us for two minutes while we play ourselves out, and um, we'll catch you on the flip side, okay? Of course, of course. Cheers. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> All right, then, we're back. The dwarf, <laughs> the cripple, and the mother of madness. Oh, that was intense. That we was have ch- to get Terry back for part two. I know. <laughs> I had to cut it short because we we, we blew over time mm. and we rifled through it, but mm. that was fascinating. It was. We could have had another hour. Easy. Easy. Yeah. Peasy. Easy peasy. Lemon sque- lemonade squeezy. Yeah. And it's one of those where, I mean... We we could probably talk about that for another hour now and not do all the topical stuff because uh, there was that much to go over. Yeah. But alas, you know, time's of the essence. It's Sunday night. Yeah, we've got things to debrief. Yeah, don't please check out Terry's website. Link in the yeah. description and, and check the books out. Yeah, Devil's Den. Yep. And, and Devil's Den Reckon- Reckoning. Reckoning, yeah. Yeah, um, legit bat. When we were talking to Legit Bat a couple of weeks ago, they were big fans of uh, Terry's yeah. books, and I Terry think they spoke to him as well. Yeah, it's brilliant. Right then, let's... Uh, housekeeping. Some housekeeping. Housekeeping. 
housekeeping. Oh, this is a value for value podcast. If you found this podcast valuable, please consider returning some value. There's a myriad of way of doing it. Leave I us bet. a review on iTunes. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Odyssey channel. The Ooh. Odyssey channel is now being updated. And um, we have one follower now. Oh, so we're joining all the uh, other alt-right lunatics on Odyssey then, are we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when in Rome. Well, it won't be long, you know. Who knows when the YouTube axe will swing. <laughs> <laughs> we're lucky we're too small to be censored at the moment because if we had uh, 10,000 subs, we wouldn't have a YouTube channel, I don't think. Too small yeah, right. to fail. Jamie Deluxe, uh, he, he's got his suspended, I think. I don't know who that is. One of the Union of the Unwanted. Oh, right. big old day, big old guest for us. Right. Mm. Um, he's a funny guy. Good. Funny like a clown. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I amuse you? <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> <laughs> You're not learning your lesson. Sorry. Sorry. Jingle requests is another way you can become... We need producers. Yeah. yeah. Right? Sign up to the YouTube... Sub on YouTube. Sub is on Odyssey. And watch the videos on Odyssey. Odyssey. <laughs> uh, leave us reviews on iTunes. Follow us on social media. All the links are in the description. Buy some merch from the Amish loot chest. Yeah. That you're literally a communist. Hoodie. I'm literally a communist. Hoodie. <laughs> Get your current great t-shirts. Yeah. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, jingle requests. You requested yeah. a jingle last week, Amish Matt. I did, yeah. Just one remember? off. Yeah. Just for you, this. This is the extended cut. Oh, good. Mm. Slide back and open your withdrawal agreement. I want to probe your backstop. Give your backstop to me. Oh, it's getting so close. What's that? ERG are watching us. Yeah, I can see them on the back benches. That's so hot. Might have to use those fridges we've been stuck on. Maybe we can come to some sort of arrangement. Some kind of alternative customs arrangement. Because you're not scared of our beef anymore. Upset my constitution. We don't have one. Magna Carta. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for Brexit and it's Brexit time. Now we have our fisheries. 
just for you, that one, I'm sure. Oh, I thoroughly, really cool. thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. And Mate, you saw me right off, Jarvis Cocker. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, totally redundant as well. No. Yeah. Shame. Done and dusted. Yeah, microwave ready, Brexit deal done. <laughs> Three minutes, you know. Ping. 700, 750 watts. Radioactive man. Yeah, yeah. So, um. Yeah. Asna! <laughs> I don't think it's, have we oh I'll tell you what what's the last oh send it we haven't even done half the producer stuff fucking <laughs> hell send us um, articles yeah. news clips videos anything you find interesting that isn't getting any play on the mainstream yeah send it to the the alt fellas and we will we will amplify it mm. anything else to become a producer. Um, You'll get a producer credit in the show notes and a thank you, special thank you from me. Yeah. A mention on the show. Yeah. Toss a fucking coin. Toss a coin to your witcher, oh valley of plenty. Oh, I'm literally a communist. Toss a coin to your witcher. I think you're hitting, hitting the point, Phil, that... Uh, and it really bothers me uh, uh, because I, I believe I, I have an issue in this respect. I, I have an issue in this respect. We don't get enough donations, so um, go to the armistinquisition.com and find the PayPal button there and sign up for a monthly or a one off. You're feeling flush? Yeah. All I right. Think I- have you got a list of uh, producers to to read out then? It's that time, isn't it? Yeah. Right, let's thank the producers for episode 175. They're just so amazing. They are. Yeah. So amazing in their love. Literally. The best mate. I've been coming to terms with the fact that I am chest feeding. Fucking vegan. The dwarf, the carads, the grape, the homophobe, the wind, the uh, tosilizu mab, the fucking vegan, the lion dog faced pony soldier, the Aston. I haven't even read it, Arthur. No, I was just wondering what was going on. We're doing it the other way around. Fuck, 175. Simon Laurie King from the Slick Podcast, Gav Scott, Brendan of Ireland, Nomi Nosnodge, online chemistry tutor, and Malin Baker. Thank you. What? What about Adam Curry from the, the No Agenda podcast? The Podfather? Yeah. Oh, God, Dax. this is meta. This is like yeah. um, Inception. <laughs> well, no, we, we've had di- you've had direct contact with him now, so I think he should be named a producer as well. He touched me. He did, didn't he? <laughs> he touched me online, the Podfather. He did. But we've stolen our model and our, our half of our podcast off him. Mm, that's now, fine. It's, it's open source. So we have to make him a producer on our podcast? Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Podfather. (laughs) Sorry, I'm a douchebag. 
the dwarf, the currants, the grape, the homophobe, the wind, the uh, tosilizu mab, the fucking vegan, the blind dog faced pony soldier, the asna, the corn pop, chance, the number 11, the slushy deposit, the blind man, the communist on the horizon, the cripple and the mother of Bunny Pickering from like a judgment day and terminating mode like we're on <laughs> Don't get it, never will. Yeah, thanks for your support for another week. I've, I don't think I've ever done that before. Yeah. I'm still yeah. floored. I think I'm still floored by Terry. Yeah. Terry Lovelace, I'm still processing his... Story. His story. Yeah. It's throwing me. Yeah. Oh, man. Right. Toss. What, Toss? Toss 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 Mm. All right then, shall we uh, shall we move on? COVID-19 news. If you let it rip, they would get infected very rapidly and soon be filling up your hospitals and unfortunately your morgues. Vaccination is going to be, in the end, your route to liberty. I wish we could vaccinate against stupidity. Uh, tos, tosilizum, mum. In the same ballpark as seasonal influenza. From hell, uh, the magic vaccine. It's not going to allow us to go completely back to normal. Because you're getting bored and you want to have fun. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. Got a healthy chunk of COVID news to get through. Couple of serious Ooh. things to get off, get out of the way at the top. Oh, what? Really? Yeah. No. Are we uh, are we familiar with Geert van den Bosch? No. Not the mm, holding midfielder for PSV Eindhoven. <laughs> no. No, the vaccine scientist. He's uh, come to my attention this week. He did an interview with Dan Gregory from the Pandemic Podcast. <laughs> Fellow Englishman who's been uh, talking to scientists and stuff over the lockdown and uh, this uh, guy, Geert van den Bosch, turned up um, and he came to prominence this week. He's been writing open letters and he's now done a short two-minute video, like an open video to the WHO, mm-hmm. which I shall play for you now. Okay. Dear colleagues at the WHO, my name is Geert van den Bosch. My background is veterinary medicine. I'm a certified expert in microbiology and infectious diseases. I have a PhD in virology and I have a long-standing career in human vaccinology. I'm urging you to immediately open the scientific debate on how human interventions in the COVID-19 pandemic are currently driving viral immune escape. I'm urging you to invite me for a scientific hearing open to the public and to scientists all over the world on this very topic, ignoring or denying the impact of stringent infection prevention measures combined with mass vaccination 
using prophylactic vaccines is a colossal blunder. Please do listen to my cry of distress and let's first and foremost deliberate on a scientifically justified strategy to mitigate the tsunami of morbidity and lethality that is now threatening us. And let's meanwhile devise a strategy to eradicate the steadily emerging highly infectious variants. On behalf of humanity, I sincerely thank you for considering my call. So he's worried about a a, a super strain, effectively, um, rioting as a result of vaccine. So sort of connecting that back to um, superbugs and the use of antibiotics. If you were uh, parallels with that, if yeah, if you check out the pandemic podcast interview, I think it's about an hour that I watched. It's quite technical, goes into great detail, and he explains the situation. Uh, the cliff notes, bottom line is, mass, vaccina- mass, mass vaccination during a pandemic, particularly with prophylactic vaccines, will cause catastrophic consequences, force mutations, drive immune escape, uh, which will cause the mutations to increase transmissibility and lethality. They'll be more da- dangerous to young people. And also the vaccine will compromise innate immune responses in those who are vaccinated. Um, so it's technical and long-winded, but it's pretty alarming. But I'm going to put the link in the show notes for anyone who wants to watch it. He's put a load of open letters on LinkedIn. And uh, he's uh, alarmed, essentially, that we're... By doing a mass vaccination ca- uh, campaign during a pandemic, we're going to force mutations that is going to make this thing... It's going to make last year look like a walk in the park. Um, I'll just give you a bit of his background because, you know, most people have never heard of this guy. He got his PhD, uh, his uh, MD in 1983. Uh, I'll just give you his, like, the bits of his CV that I pulled from LinkedIn. Uh Research scientist in virology, immunology, and molecular biology at the Robert Koch Institute, 87 to 90. That's like the German equivalent of the CDC. Senior research scientist and head of environmental virology at the University of Hockenheim, 90 to 94. Adjunct professor of environmental biology and zoonotic diseases at the University of Hockenheim, 97 to 2000. Then he goes into the private sector, senior project leader in adolescent vaccine projects, GlaxoSmithKline, 98-2001, head of adjuvant technologies and alternative deliveries, R&D, GlaxoSmithKline, 2001-2006. Then he moves to Novartis, vaccines and diagnostics, 06-07, director of research program and head of adjuvants, uh, then uh, that's it, Solvay Biologics. Oh, sorry, and then he goes, Global Project Director of Influenza Vaccines at Solvay, another pharma company, 
Then he goes Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, <laughs> 2008 to 2011, Senior Program Officer in Global Health and Vaccine Discovery. Then he goes to Gavi, that's the Global Vaccine Alliance. Uh, what did he do there? Program Manager, 2015, 2016. Then he goes to Univac, Chief Innovation and Scientific Officer. And then he becomes Head of Vaccine Development at uh, German Centre for Infectious Infection Research, 2017 to 2018. Quite an illustrious career, and then he was touched by Dr. Bill, and he might have gone off the rails. <laughs> well, he started in academia. Then he went to Robert Koch, which is like a national-level German institute. Then he goes into the private sector, works for three big pharma companies. Then he goes global with Bill and Melinda and uh, Gavi. You would think he knows his onions, this guy. But I thought it was just important to get it out there because, you know, this sort of information tends to be suppressed. If it contradicts WHO guidelines, it will be removed from YouTube. I think what he's saying is broadly correct in that any virus is going to work to, or not work, any virus is going to um, go through some changes that will will cause challenges for any kind of limited technology that we develop to hit whatever strain we're focusing on. And that's why there's a different flu vaccine every year. Yeah, I mean, part of the uh, the outcome, as he sees it, is that it'll wipe out innate immunity, and therefore, once you've had the vaccine, you'll be dependent on getting the next vaccine every six months or 12 months, whatever. Well, if you're... If you get a new strain of virus and your immune system works to eradicate that, that's where you develop your innate immunity anyway. Yeah, but you're I, getting I, the I vaccine instead. Vaccine every year, but, and if I got the flu, I would either die or not die and if i don't die and i recover from it i am immune to that strain of flu that's not to say that there's another strain of flu that's going to come up come along the next year and i'll get flu again and it might be even worse you need to i think i can't i'm not an expert in virology so i can't sort of say in detail how he explained it it sort of made sense as i was watching it that the way the vaccines work provides um It's once once you've had that vaccine, that becomes your automatic response rather than your innate immunity. He, say, he says he says that the the vaccination will outcompete your innate immune response. Basically, I think I'm wording that right. So therefore, your innate immune response is removed, and so then you will be reliant on the spike protein. Um. Immunity. Or whatever. No, I don't agree. I think um, you the vaccine would trigger, or is designed to trigger an immune response. You, your antibodies don't stick around in your body forever. Uh, 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 well, hang on, hang on. This is why he says the problem is doing it in the middle of a pandemic. So the right. chances are that a lot of people are going to pick up the infection immediately before and after the vaccination, and this is part of the problem. You've got to watch it. I can't explain it. I'm, I haven't got, I'm, you know, I've just read out his fucking laundry list of credentials. I can't argue on his behalf. No. You know, it's there. If anyone wants to watch it, they can watch it. 
and uh, you know they can write him off or take him seriously. It's you know come to your own conclusions. Mm-hmm. I just uh, wanted to get in out there. Serious thing number one. Serious thing number two. He was at Novartis when I was there. Right. Interestingly. What was his role there? Novartis. Adjuvants. He was head of adjuvant technologies and alternative deliveries, R&D. So adjuvants are additional chemicals that... um, strengthen the immune response that's triggered by a vaccine. Yeah, I'm not sure adjuvants are used in the... Uh, these I don't think they are. No, I don't think they are. But anyway. Um, right, next subject, blood clots. Uh, we played a clip of Sukarit Bakdi earlier in the year who was the uh, virologist, I think he was attached to Mainz. Is it, is it, is it pronounced Mainz, the city? Mainz. Mainz, Mainz. Maybe. Somewhere in Germany. And uh, he was calling into question like the PCR stuff and what have you. But um, I've got him on this issue of blood clots because we know this week, was it the 12th? that a lot of European countries sort of uh, have paused the AstraZeneca vaccine, haven't they, because of a thing of, of concern about thrombo blood clots. Pulmonary embolism. But thrombocytopenia. Yeah, that's the one. So that was like, I think that was maybe the 11th or the 12th of March. But anyway, on the 1st of March, Sukarit Bakdi sends a private letter to the EMA on behalf of a group of doctors called um, Doctors for COVID Ethics, uh, requesting to halt the vaccine rollout due to a potential problem with blood clots. Mm-hmm. A week later, on the 8th and the 9th, after receiving no response, they made the letter public. And uh, he also released this video that I've got a couple of clips from. So um, clip one will give you what an idea of what their issue is. Anyone with a medical education who has also studied the composition and action mechanism of the vaccines must realize that there's every reason to expect grave side effects. Once the vaccines enter the bloodstream, which they will, they will remain entrapped there and will enter the cells that line the blood vessels and induce these to produce the virus protein. Two dangerous things must then be expected to happen. Firstly, many copies of the virus spike will appear on the cell surface. These may directly bind and activate blood platelets, which will trigger blood clotting. Secondly, the cells producing the spike protein may be attacked by our own immune system because the immune system is trained to recognize and destroy cells that produce the virus. Damage to the blood vessel lining must be expected to cause the blood to clot as well. The effect is likely magnified in individuals receiving their second vaccinations, as well as in patients who have been infected with any coronavirus shortly before or after vaccination. This may well have contributed to the observed clusters of deaths in senior homes. And there have been case reports of severe illness and deaths occurring in young and middle-aged persons 
because of profound disturbances in blood clotting. So two issues. He's got the blood clotting issue that they raised and also the um, enhanced immune response issue, <clears throat> potential issue. He's but talking it, about mRNA vaccine here, isn't he, With the, where it's triggering the cells to produce the spike proteins. Yeah, but the AstraZeneca works in a similar manner. The, well, you know, it, it does. I mean, that, it was sold to us that AstraZeneca was the traditional vaccine. It ain't. Mm-hmm. It's still telling your cells to produce the spike protein. It just does it in a different way. The only traditional vaccine is the J&J. And um, the Russian one. Yeah, and Sinovac and Sputnik, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. Anyway, here's what he wants done about it. Let us begin together with a challenge to the medical regulators to release the bold figures of the numbers of people... This is cute. Listen to this. The numbers of people... ...who have died within 28 days of receiving a COVID-19 vaccine. (laughs) We, the people, have a legal and ethical right to be informed about the risks of any medical intervention, including risks that result from missing evidence and a right not to be experimented on. I mean, we've, we've brought, I've brought up this um, logical fallacy before, that we record COVID deaths as someone who's died within 28 days of a positive COVID death. Yeah. But uh, with vaccine, you have to provide correlation. You have to provide causation. There are two different mechanisms at work. So I thought it was quite funny. He said, "Anyone who's died within twenty-eight days of a vaccine, we want the num- we want the bold numbers for that." I mean, it would it would kind of put the COVID thing into perspective, I guess, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, our lowest figures today: fifty-two deaths recorded today. Nice. Within twenty-eight days of a PCR positive. Hmm. And just to put that in perspective, over the last twenty-eight days, there's been a, about twenty million tests. You know. Really? 52 people have died out of 20 million tests. That's false, positive and negative tests as well, isn't it? Oh, it's all positive tests. I mean, that's how we record deaths, PHE, 28 days of a positive test, 52 deaths. And over the last 28 days, we've had 20 million tests. So, So, Sorry, you're saying you've had 20 million positive tests over the last 28 days? No. It's just, just that's what I mean. So there's positive and negative results in there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Test, test carried out. What's the case? It's a case, damn it! Now, what are the cases? <laughs> thousand, three or four thousand, maybe. Is it right? What's happened to the fucking Tosulizu mob? <laughs> Not even about that anymore, are we? What was that one again? Toss, uh, you're, you're in trouble in hospital, isn't it? It's to reduce your time in ICU. Yeah. So I guess there's less uh, people there. Yeah. I just found it interesting that he came out with this earlier in the week and then soon afterwards, you know, half a dozen European countries in Thailand have paused AstraZeneca. Yeah, so, Ireland uh, paused it today. Ireland, uh, yeah. Have they? I've seen that, yeah. Haven't you got a limited supply of AstraZeneca vaccine? Limited supply of everything, every vaccine, haven't they? Yeah, Italy um, blocked the exportation to Australia, didn't they, of some AstraZeneca? I think that was this week. Mm -hmm. Mm. 
the uh, WHO's set up an expert advisory committee, and that's currently looking at the AstraZeneca vaccine. The clotting. Sorry? For the clotting issue. Yeah, on this issue, yeah. I mean, there's some, there's some wacky, um, wacky uh, records in the yellow card figures for, for things that are, have been recorded as, as a, you know, an injury or event as a result of having a vaccine. There's, there's loads of mad stuff on there. 274 deaths, I think, um, so far. But they record things like someone got a bite injury um, after having the vaccine. So that was recorded in the yellow card system. I don't understand how that works, but... That, yeah, twenty eight so, days. So, if you want a list of weird injuries and <laughs> syndromes and things, that's that's the place to go. That MHRA yellow card list is it's just got everything. I I wonder how sophisticated this monitoring system actually is. Well, they seem to be accessing anything. I mean, you could ring up tomorrow and say, you know, I, I had the vaccine and it left some wires in my leg, um, and it, they'd record it as as being related to the, to the vaccine. They don't seem to. I should know more about this, but they they don't. Looking at the figures, they seem to just record everything. If you if you log something in the yellow card system, it will be recorded. I don't, I don't know if there's any investigation. So it's essentially worthless. Well, the, there must be a second stage that I'm not seeing, but the, the records on the UK Gov website for the for the yellow card just has everything. Like like there were cases of death that were fatal. So 16 cases of death recorded after after having the vaccine and, and all 16 were recorded also as fatal. Mm. But there was an option to have a non-fatal death injury um, in there. I suppose your heart could stop, couldn't it? And they restart it. What? Yeah, that's getting metaphysical, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've I've not really any faith in VAERS or the uh, yellow card system. I don't know. I mean, I suppose if you had a sudden peak of, you know, if if there were, I think there'd been, what, six blood clotting reports that have led to some fairly nasty injuries and at least one death. Mm. Um, If you suddenly had 20,000... Because how many vaccines have been administered now? Millions. Like 20 million or something? 23 million. If, even million. if you had 20,000, which is a small amount, <laughs> 0.01% or something, mm. that would be enough to go, hang on, 20,000 people are, are experiencing um, blood clotting, pulmonary embolism. How do they know? How do they know it's blood clotting? Because obviously thousands of people are dying in old false homes in short succession from having the vaccine. How do they yeah, know that they aren't blood clot deaths? Well, they deaths? don't. They don't. And back to, he mentioned there the spike in um, deaths in care homes when vaccinations take place. But we just don't know, do we? We're just sort of, uh, Unless you have an autopsy on everyone. We can't do it. We don't have the capacity. No. That's why I don't have any faith in the, the VAERS system and the yellow card system. No. I think when you're vaccinating on the on the scale that we are, there's no way of monitoring it efficiently. I suppose it can pick up things like Guillain Barr syndrome or Bell's palsy and things like that that are that are non-fatal. Obvious, obvious yeah. Obvious, yeah. Yeah. 
And if there were peaks in that, then you know that's where the yellow card system is handy. Because that's you can take that data and go, hang on, there is case for pausing this because a hundred thousand people have got temporary paralysis. I mean, that's an issue, really, even if it is temporary. Yeah. You know, every every single person will record a sore arm after having a vaccine. I, I don't know anyone who will, and that is that is something that should be recorded as a side effect and is. Mm. Um, but it has it has no consequence beyond you know a day. But you know, anecdotally, I've heard a lot of people who felt rough after having um, the the vac. I only know AZ people who've had vaccine. Um, People who've had the AZ vaccine, I think, and um, yeah, reports of you know twenty four hours of malaise. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've heard that, and I've also heard people who've had no noticeable side effects whatsoever. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's a funny one. Yeah. Can we do some fun stuff? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was only two two serious points and yeah. dragged it out into. I've got I've got a couple of clips from we mentioned Adam Curry before the No Agenda show mm-hmm. that I've stolen from the No Agenda, and uh, I just think these are fantastic. <laughs> I couldn't resist. If if you don't listen to No Agenda, I encourage you to do so because they find nuggets like this. This is um, <laughs> this is the story of how Pfizer drove its bargain with the Argentinian government to supply. Um, <laughs> Sorry? Your mamu. Sorry, I watched Dr. Strange yesterday. <laughs> it comes to bargain. Oh, right. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> this is how the uh, uh, Pfizer, not AZ, Pfizer drove the, uh, the bargain to supply, supply uh, to secure supplies of the vaccine. Talks between Argentina and Pfizer began in June 2020. In July, President Alberto Fernandez held a meeting with Pfizer's CEO in Argentina. Guess what followed? Pfizer asked to be compensated for the cost of any future lawsuits. What does that mean? Say someone files a civil lawsuit against Pfizer in Argentina, and if that person wins the case, who pays the compensation? It won't be Pfizer. It would be the government of Argentina. So pretty standard so far. All, all the makers have been granted immunity from... Indemnity, uh, yeah. Uh, indemnity from any liabilities, but it gets better. Now, Argentina had never done this before, but it made an exception. It needed life-saving vaccines, and desperate times call for desperate measures. So Argentina's parliament passed a new law in October 2020. But Pfizer was unhappy with its phrasing. The law said Pfizer needs to at least pay for negligence, for its own mistakes. If it happens to make any in future, Pfizer rejected this. No, no, it doesn't matter if we make any mistakes. Hurry on, guess better. It won't pay for its mistakes. Argentina then offered to amend the law to define negligence more clearly, to include only vaccine distribution and delivery under negligence. Pfizer was still not happy. It demanded the law be amended through a new decree. That's when Argentina put its foot down. They refused. Pfizer then asked Argentina to buy an international insurance. What for? To pay for potential future cases against the company. Argentina agreed. In December 2020, Pfizer came back with more demands. It wanted sovereign assets as collateral. What 
what does that mean? Pfizer wanted Argentina to put, and listen to this, put its bank reserves, its military bases, and its embassy buildings at stake as collateral. Just wanted to take over the country. Might as well just invade. It's fucking wild, isn't it? Yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> so it kind of makes you think then the, the, the level of indemnity that they have from the US government and the UK government then. So they must have that indemnity from the the most litigious country in the world, surely. Yeah, because the state, uh, Fauci, was quizzed on this by a Mexican comedian this week. And this Mexican comedian did the best interview that's been heard. Because, you know, the normal journalists, they won't ask him anything difficult. Mm -hmm. But one of the things this comedian asked him was about the indemnity. Mm. And, uh, yeah, um, basically Fauci says, oh, well, we have a procedure intimated about the vaccine courts. Mm -hmm. And, like, the comedian says, like, well, what... What's the motivation for them to make a decent product? They can put out any old shit, <laughs> and if it goes wrong, mm. the the taxpayers on the hook for it. Federal government. But anyway, yeah, this is how it this is how it operates. Because let's not forget the clinical trials finished in twenty twenty three. You know. So I just thought it was wild the lengths they'll go to to uh, cover their own backs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it kind of reminded me of this actually. Arithian, take the princess and the Wookiee to my ship. You said they'd be left in the city under my supervision. I am altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. <laughs> yeah, got them over a barrel, aren't they? <coughs> yeah, Darth Pfizer. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> got another clip from. Uh, from No Agenda. Um, and this is the upcoming National Geographic documentary. About Pfizer? It's about, you know, um, the, the the race to develop the vaccine to, to okay. save humanity, the brilliant souls who've put everything on the line in their research and burnt the midnight oil to, to <laughs> come and save us and produce the, the magic vaccine. Here's the trailer for it. biggest challenge was the timeline. How are we going to do this? We couldn't pursue a vaccine in a normal way. We broke the process. How many people will die if we don't have a solution? Mission Possible, the race for a vaccine, premieres Thursday, March 11th at 10 on National Geographic. Paid content created for and in collaboration with Pfizer. (laughs) It's just propaganda. Yeah. Isn't it? Well, it is, yeah. yeah. Can anyone, can everyone else see this? Mm-hmm. Or am I going insane? <laughs> Pfizer's paying for the documentary about how they discovered the vaccine. Well, yeah. 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 Anyway, nice. sticking with uh, propaganda, uh, the Emperor of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, <laughs> let the mask slip this week. Uh, yeah, at a pref- press conference, she was describing her uh, state re-education facilities, isolation camps, and she let this slip. Uh, and I will just reiterate again, this was an individual who had gone through managed isolation 
We drum in that messaging around the dangers of COVID pretty diligently for a full two-week period of sustained propaganda. <laughs> we drum in that messaging around the dangers of COVID pretty diligently for a full two-week period of sustained propaganda. So sorry, did someone get caught and they have to you have to go through a COVID re education camp for two weeks? Yeah. Great yeah. flouting lockdown. They have the same thing whereas when you enter the country you go to an isolation camp. Oh, I see. <laughs> you know, like they were building in Canada, you remember we were talking to Grand America. Oh fuck. And they were putting yeah. the tender out for uh, yeah. these camps that they can hold people in. Yeah. They- <laughs> We've just got holiday inns. Yeah. Yeah, and, and part of the deal is you have to be re-educated with a you know a solid two weeks of propaganda. <laughs> I wonder if it's like <laughs> Big Brother, where you, what's the thing called in the Big Brother where they play on the big screen? I can't remember what it's called. Room one hundred and one. Maybe I can't remember the name of the object. It's not called a television, is it? Telescreen. Oh, telescreen. Yeah, <laughs> you have to sit in your bedroom and watch twenty-four hours of telescreen. People do that themselves. They don't even have to be forced to anymore. I suppose, yeah. Paid for by Pfizer. Yeah. Anal swab tests for. <laughs> anyway, should we do um, some cronyism? Yeah. yeah. Local news. Yeah. Well, it's Mancock, isn't it? Mancock's been under the cosh this week. Oh God! Slippy little so. dude. Yeah, anyway, uh, starting off with, the Department of Health did a 90 million deal with a firm listed in a Chinese hotel room. The Department of Health signed two PPE deals worth more than 90 million pounds with a state-backed Chinese firm listed as a hotel room in Beijing. (laughs) Nearly published documents show the heavily redacted contracts have emerged as the government is accused of signing off secretive big money deals with foreign firms despite British companies having tendered their services. Hatz-Mancock's department spent an estimated $9.5 billion on vital PPA equipment during the first wave as it tried to rush supplies to the NHS supply chain. According to uh, Tussle Market Intelligence, the deal struck with Beijing Union Glory Investment Company Limited. Oh, my God. Featuring documents which were released last week. The largest amount, $69.9 million, paid for surgical theatre gowns in contract in a contract that began in May 2020. Uh, under the terms, it's a bit like Vader's deal, this. Under the terms, 70% of the contract value was to be paid by transfer through China Everby- Everbright Bank within three working days of the deal being struck. <laughs> uh, the company's address is listed as Room 9401A, Guobin Hotel, number 9, Fuwa Street, Xinyang District. I wonder if you ever got those gowns. Oh, my God. Do you know what's interesting about these um, these contracts that are being released? They're, they're heavily redacted. There's no unit price. No, because it'll be extortionate, won't it? Of course it will. Absolutely yeah. extort nine point five billion on masks <laughs> and gowns and gloves and gowns and, and gloves and you know it's not they're not talking about sort of respirators and things like that are they? Are they fuck no? It's just cheap cloth masks you get for a quid, yeah. like a hundred. I imagine some uh, a lot of government ministers are going to be having some really nice all expenses paid uh, trips to this hotel in the coming years. <laughs> You know, I'd imagine. Yeah. Can't think of. Yeah. 
He's been getting a lot of flack for his relationship with Alex Boring, hasn't he? Is this, he his, is this his non-friend next-door neighbour? The guy the, who owned his local pub in his constituency? That he happens to have a picture of in his, back, <laughs> in his office, but he definitely didn't know I wasn't a friend of. Yeah, this is the story from The Guardian this week. Um, Mancock in bother again. The former neighbour of Hats Mancock, who was supplying the NHS with millions of COVID test tubes, joked to the health secretary that he'd never heard of him <laughs> during a private WhatsApp exchange. The exchange, seen by The Guardian, suggests Alex Bourne, a former publican who had no prior experience of producing medical devices before he began supplying the government, may have downplayed his relationship with Mancock in public. The messages, which suggest an easy familiarity between the two men, were sent in late November, shortly before The Guardian published a story about Bourne's work supplying the NHS and his links to the health secretary. In a WhatsApp message Mancock sent to Bourne about the imminent story, the health secretary called the newspaper a rag. <laughs> uh, Bourne wrote back, Hat Mancock, never heard of him. Uh, before assuring the health secretary that his lawyers were all over the reporter in question, like a tramp on chips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you read the Guardian article, it gives a handy explanation of what that means, if anyone's wondering. You know, if I was going to set up um, manufacturing PPE, I mean, it would be pretty handy to have the health secretary's number in my WhatsApp group, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing is, is, you know, I, I, I don't mind, because at the time there was that kind of... Um, what's it called, Dad's Army kind of spirit or whatever, um, at the beginning of the pandemic when we wanted to retool, you know, manufacturing to make things for... Oh, yeah, making ventilators. Uh, yeah, making things for, you know, that we needed rather than having to sort of import. Don't tell him your name, Pike. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, yeah. But anyway, so he, he, he did make... That guy, if you read this, if you read the story, he did make um, like packaging for takeaways or something like that. Mm-hmm. So he was basically, you know, retooling his stuff to make these test tubes. It's more the fact that he's obviously um, lied about the, the, his relationship with this person, isn't it? Um, that's what it is. He's him just being dishonest again. It's cronyism, isn't it? Yeah. And I've said it before and I've said it again. If you want to steal big, steal from the state. Mm. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. That's where all the money is. Yeah. And I think the other thing, you know, is, um, again, there'll be no unit price, will there? And, you know, I think 50 million was the contracts he signed with him. Mm. Um, So, and I think he's had to return a million. There was a massive recall. A million test tubes has the, been, uh, have been returned to him. Yeah, there was imperfections in the test tubes or they weren't sealing properly. And then there was reports of him just torching him in his back garden. <laughs> the same fires. <laughs> These are no good. <laughs> I can't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> Can you not like recycle them? This no. is acrid black smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Reportedly, allegedly, unconfirmed. Okay. That's I mean, he, he, he operates his factory, this guy. out. He's, I think his father-in-law or his father has a potato farm mm. and he has an industrial unit on it. 
um, where he has his manufacturing line based. It's a very interesting story. Um, it is. If you read it. Yeah, and um, don't um, think that this is a UK problem. This is no. uh, this is happening everywhere. Yeah, um, and it would have happened. It happens any under under any government. I'm sure it happened under Labour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's happening to uh, the Germans. The Germans are getting in, in on the act. All right, good. Yeah, you Look know where we're going to have to go to to find out this news. Oh, don't you feel like <laughs> DW. <laughs> What is being called the mask affair surfaced at the end of February, when police searched the offices of Georg Nusslein, a member of parliament and prominent figure in the conservative CSU party. Nusslein is being probed for bribery. He is thought to have accepted over 600,000 euros by a mask producer to lobby for its product. I mean, that's just cold hard cash. <laughs> 600 grand to lobby. That's taking it to the next level. Anyway, he's not the only one. But the affair doesn't stop here. Nicolas Löbel, a lawmaker with Chancellor Angela Merkel's CDU party, admitted his company received 250,000 euros to act as a mediator for mask purchases. Prosecutors are now carrying out an initial review of his case. Both Nusslein and Löbel have announced their departure from the conservative bloc's parliamentary group. But while Lubel resigned from Parliament effective immediately, Nusslein plans to keep his seat. For the- yeah, don't let a good crisis go to waste. No. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, it's those just people corruption. actually needed those, um, that 600,000 euros and 250,000 euros. Yeah, it's just greed. It's greed and opportunism. But, well, if anyone wants us to lobby for anything, we know where <laughs> yeah. to send the cash. PayPal buttons on there. Yeah. Uh, the Amish Inquisition. Five pound a month. <laughs> and what's happened this week? The US government's just signed a $1.9 trillion relief bill. I don't know. I was just going to mention that. You said, did you say, is it how much do everybody get? Is it $1,500 or something? It's, it's Yeah, every citizen gets $1,400, and it only costs five and a half grand for that. <laughs> So you quids in. <laughs> great, great deal, isn't it? I know. Well, it's exactly the same for us, isn't it? Where do you think all that money's going to go? Into mm. the fucking dirty pockets of these shits. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. where it goes. Well, the, the, yeah, the big chunks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah where's the other $4,000? Programs. Yeah. Program for this. Program for that. Road we'll building. Set up a working group for this program. <laughs> we need a white paper for this. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Spread it all out. Quando one point nine trillion. That isn't that more than our GDP. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I would say so. Oh, maybe it is about two trillion. I don't know. But yeah, it made me laugh. Someone was talking about Bitcoin, saying like, you know, Bitcoin. It's not based on anything. Don't buy Bitcoin. It's not based on anything. US prints one point nine trillion dollars. <laughs> What's that based on? Fiat nonsense. IOUs. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. I missed it. I actually missed a bit of the housekeeping, you know. Oh? So, uh, we had a a communique from Brendan of Ireland on Instagram. Right, okay. (laughs) Calling Armish Ben out. Yeah. I posted it. He obviously knows that you're an ardent royalist. 
<laughs> and I posted a meme to Instagram of the Harry and Meghan interview, and it's captioned with Harry saying, they're all fucking lizards, mate. Yeah. Some words to that effect. And uh, what's he said? Uh, Brendan of Ireland. Armish Ben, you're fucking way off. <laughs> they be reptilian hybrids. They eat babies, man. But no, seriously, they have no empathy, heart, or compassion. Therefore, they are lizards. Well, you know. <laughs> so I said, yeah, the, the, the mainstream media has poisoned Armish Brendan's brain. And, Netflix. Uh, and uh, Brendan came back with, oh, we know, we know. He's like the handler on the show. <laughs> when you get too close to the truth, he'll start glitching. Famous Scully. Brendan yeah. thinks you're going to start glitching, Ben. It's already happening, man. <laughs> oh, dear. That made me chuckle. Hey, you got a producer credit, Brendan, so, you know. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Hi of your we week. Welcome, we welcome such communiques. Yeah. Mm. Have you donated Brendan though? I don't know. Are you a douchebag? Sounds like one. Yeah. <laughs> I really should have uh, done that. I should have read out that thing in uh, what's it in uh, an Irish accent, really, shouldn't I? No. But I can't save you if you're not wearing a face mask. <laughs> that thing. There's an embargo on accents. Um, all right, should we move on? Yeah, go on. Um, the tragic murder of Sir Everhard has captured the attention of the press, hasn't it, this week? Yeah. Yeah, it's all been kicking off or something. Yeah, there was um, a vigil. Was it yeah. today or yesterday? Last night, maybe, or something. Maybe it was no, last it, night. And it, did he get broken up? Is that... The Met went in and arrested him. <laughs> well guess what you know if you give up your right to protest yeah it doesn't matter if it's in a good cause doesn't matter the motivation yeah. you've broken the law I mean I don't agree with it obviously but yeah. uh, without sounding harsh where were these people you know back in April last year when our rights were stripped from us well, they're not protesting because of no, that. No, I know. I, I'm sounding harsh, but the, the the principle is is that this these all this shit is illegal now, and we've let oh, yeah. we've let that happen. But you don't think like that, do you? This is the thing, isn't it? It's like the 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 fear factor that changes how you what you're willing to do. Yeah, yeah. And well, is... we've seen it with the the OAPs bending the rules now because they've been vaccinated. Exactly. Yeah. You know, good on for it. Of, yeah, your own risk assessment. Listen to Lord Sumption. Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, so this tragic murder has captured the media attention this week. Um, I think the Green Party peer, Jenny Jones, may have gone a bit OTT this week, speaking in the House of Lords. Oh, my God, I'm on the wrong page. Where was it? Oh, this is embarrassing. <laughs> oh, my God. Come on, Brendan's going to be back on Twitter now. Am I? <laughs> oh, dear. She's basically said that men should be uh, not allowed out after six o'clock or something. And I think she's Sorry. highlighting the double double standards. I don't think she's seriously 
suggesting a policy in which men aren't allowed out past six o'clock in order to improve the safety of women. Well, she said that. She, uh, sorry, she. I spoke to my wife about this, and she said, you know, if I was to go, if you had to go and walk across our dark local park, what's the first thing you'd be thinking? Uh, I think, well, I, I, maybe I'd be worried about getting mugged. Mm. She said, well, for me, it'd be, uh, what if I was raped or something like that? So You might get raped, Matt. Yeah, no, but that wasn't in my head originally. Um but I know that, yeah, it's the type of danger, I suppose. Here off context. And in the week that the woman, Sarah Everard, uh, was abducted and we suppose killed because remains have been found in a woodland in Kent, I would argue that at the next opportunity for any bill that's appropriate, I might actually put in an amendment to create a curfew for men on the streets after 6pm, which I feel would make women a lot safer. And discrimination of all kinds would be lessened. It's, it's obviously... uh, she sounds more serious than I thought. <laughs> I thought she was making like a flippant double standardy type thing. Yeah, well... Um... <clears throat> When you first hear it, you think, well, that's of, that must be tongue-in-cheek, surely. Well, I read it and, and thought, yeah, that, that is tongue-in-cheek. And to be fair, I, I did think, I did understand where she was coming from if it was a double standards thing, because all the, all the advice has been, women, don't go out on your own, don't go out in the dark, don't walk home. I mean... There are reasons for that, though, aren't there? Well, I, I, I wouldn't walk home... Or I'd, I'd probably get to it. But thinking back, when I was younger, I probably, I probably cared less. But it's a, it's a part. It's risk, isn't it? It's a risk. The prob- yes, it's not. It's not. You know, they're saying we need to live in a, a world where women can walk anywhere they want at night without the fear of being attacked. Well, that ain't happening, right? So if you lock up every man at six o'clock. It's just going to be all the women and then all the rapists and murderers because they won't obey the law. <laughs> Will they? It's stupid. No, and there's, there's, there's still danger for, for everyone. Yeah, there's danger for men. I mean, probably the biggest danger of anyone walking alone through a park is mugging, isn't it? Well, you would think so. You would think that's the most likely thing. It's very rare. You know, murders are very rare in this country. Yeah, but I don't know, maybe sexual assault is... Sexual assault's probably number two, and that's disproportionately going to happen to women. Mm-hmm. Because men are men. Yeah. And the other thing is, it's you just know... a fact of life. Yeah, I was just going to say, there's a, I was talking to my wife again about this, you, most women are going to be less strong than most men as well, aren't they? So there's yeah. always going to be a power imbalance that way or a strength imbalance or however you want to sort of... Exactly. If I'm it. walking through Moor Park on my own, I ain't getting raped unless it's Gina Carano, am I? <laughs> it's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. That's or my just wife. A, that's, <laughs> but that's just a fact of life, isn't it? There is a strength dynamic that comes to it, comes into it. Yeah, definitely. Um, no. And you're never going to resolve that. But no. then, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the, the thing I would sort of um, read was 
women sort of giving tips something started on twitter about women giving tips to men of what how men should behave in order um to make them feel safe i think one was like no yeah cross over the road um one was not walk directly behind another was um you know intervene if they look uncomfortable um so you know i think I probably try not to sort of walk behind women. I always get that kind of sense, you know, if you walk a bit, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Anyway, I probably wouldn't cross over. I'd probably just go ahead of them or something. You wouldn't go out of your way? I wouldn't cross over the road, no. I'd like, you know, if they were walking, you know, tiny little legs and I had to walk past them, um, then I would do that rather than sort of walking behind them for like, you know, half an hour or whatever to town. Would you doff your cap and wish them a good evening as you pass by? I'd probably just shout, man on the left! <laughs> Do you know, some men, seeing a woman walking home on their own late through a town centre or through a park, would actually follow them home to make sure they got home okay. Would they? Yeah, all not days. all men are fucking rapists. Some men would actually do that. Would you do that, Phil? Yeah. Is that what you got arrested for that time? <laughs> but you see, that's the that's the sort of the quandary is because the woman would see that as or may may see that as intimidating or be fearful of that. Whereas yeah, that is a bit weird. Your intentions. Yeah, you'd have to say, "Am I all right to follow you home?" I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Would you? I you probably just keep your distance. Just be sort of keeping an eye on her. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be. Ex- you won't want to make it obvious <laughs> that you are following it. It's going to, it's going to a dark place, this, isn't it? Yeah, this whole idea just sounds weird to me. I'll, I'll just leave her. Just yeah. leave her and fuck Maybe it, you know. Well, yeah. If she gets I mean, done in on way on, tough. Never mind. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, that is that is a weird thing, isn't it? Flipping it. I never thought of it that way around. Um but my immediate thoughts is, you know, if a man said to me, I would just think he was being disingenuous and say, well, why, are you, why are you being a creep and following her home? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that would my, be my initial instinct because that's just not something that I would ever consider doing. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think it's sort of common sense to take these sort of precautions. It's sort of... If you can avoid unnecessary risk, then you should take those precautions, whether man or woman. Well, that, that last point you said about intervening if someone's, you know, mm. in trouble, if, so, if someone's being roughed up or or there's an altercation in the street, I, I'm I'm not going to intervene. I don't think because the risk is then transferred to me getting stabbed or whatever. I might shout something. I don't know. Mm. But you, why would you put yourself at, at risk? I don't know. There'd have to be some sort of risk assessment that maybe maybe you do in these situations. I've not been I've not been in that sort of situation before. Crikey, you make a shit white night. I know. Right? <laughs> I don't know. It's it's called vir- it's called virtue. That's the well, virtuous I, thing to do. I know. I don't know. I don't know what I would do, basically. It depend on the situation, wouldn't it? Yeah, if it was two lads fighting, I would I would cross the street. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. What if you saw? I can't remember if I, I. I don't know. I'm trying to think if something's ever happened where I've kind of said, "Are oh, you right, love?" Um, I'm sure that I think there has. I've never had anything like that. I've never seen anything no, bad happen to a woman like in the streets, right? I'd think in that situation, that's where I'd probably man up, <laughs> Can I follow you home? You seem to, you seem to be what seems to be beating you up. Can I follow you home? <laughs> Across the street, though. I don't know. Kind of trying to think about I've, when you're I'm, not in a situation. Anything, anything sounds bonkers. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you, what you could do maybe is phone the police. Yeah, well, yeah. that's a non. Um, and you would think that they, would, they might prioritise that if you said it was a woman being attacked by a man or something. I'll probably shout, I'm, I've phoned the police. Mm. Maybe. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. i phoned the police. About, about three hours. <laughs> I mean, it seems to me the policing, that this is key to it, because to arrive in a society where uh, a lone woman can travel a park at 11 o'clock at night in complete safety would require policemen on every corner. Just You'd have to be... To feel, no, hang on. Park ranges, whatever. Well, no, to, to feel safe. Yeah. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, if a woman walks through a dark park, doesn't mean that she's going to get attacked every time that she walks through a dark park. No. Is it? Oh, the odds are probably very low. Very low. But to to stop it happening, for someone to be able to feel safe, you would have to have some sort of amazing level of police presence, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I personally would avoid walking through a dark park. On if, your own? If I could absolutely yeah. do that. If I could avoid it, I would. So would I. I'd, you know, you, I, I wouldn't do that. I'd, you know, avoid... Trying to avoid walking home from, but why? Why yeah. would you do that? Because there is inherent risk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm normally smashed if I'm walking home somewhere and it's dark. So you know, I'm obviously more vulnerable the more drunk than I am as well. Yeah. So you think? Oh, God, yeah. You after a night out. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah. You, you have to walk to sober up. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, sticking on the same subject, um, the Welsh First Minister, Mark Drayford, was quizzed by BBC Breakfast on this subject of the male curfew. Some people have said sometimes that if there were uh, um, an area particularly where there were concerns of women maybe being uh, assaulted or feeling particularly scared, that there should be a curfew on men for a period of time. Is that something that you would consider? No, is the answer, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? Well you, would, well, you would hope so. Some people have said sometimes that if there were uh, um, an area particularly it. where there were concerns of women maybe being uh, assaulted or fe- feeling particularly scared, that there should be a curfew on men for a period of time. Is that something that you would consider? 
It wouldn't be on the top of the list of things that we would consider because it would be at the very best. Uh, a temporary intervention. You now, would, I'm sorry, to be clear, the, the, I, you, you say you wouldn't, it's not the top of your list. Uh, I can only take it from that, that you could not rule out that being a, a, a potentially something that you would do. If there were a crisis uh, and you needed to take dramatic action that allowed that crisis to be drawn down, then of course you'd be prepared to consider all measures that would make a difference. But the, the sort of measure, the, cur the curfew measure that you've described, it could only ever be a temporary answer, and therefore it's not at the top of our list. There are other things that we can do and should do, and we'll work hard with our third sector organisations or local authorities in Wales. As I say, people need to be safe and to feel safe. It would only be temporary. Mm -hmm. Three weeks to flatten the curve. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. I can't believe it's even on the table. But that we've, like I said last week, Lord Sumption, we've broken this convention. Curfews. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Whole yeah. House arrest. It's all on the table now. Well done, UK. <laughs> it's First Minister of Wales. Yeah. It's like Crazy, isn't it? Parallels. Crazy. I don't know. I, this is, I don't mean to sort of link this to sort of like the culture wars, but it kind of links into like uh, thinking about this, you know, this people not wanting to live in a world where there's zero risk and zero offence. Mm. And I don't think that's possible. Like it's not possible. And I don't think it's healthy either to to aim for that. Yeah, Jordan Peterson writes in his book about the first book, 12 Rules for Life, about letting kids uh, fall off swings and slides and stuff. That's yeah. how they learn risk, how they learn to balance risk. And uh... Well, it's not that. I think it's more as well to do with emotional regulation. Mm. If you're insulated from bad emotion, the first time you experience that is going to be earth-shattering. Mm. Yeah. If if you've not had it in your life, if you've not had had to resolve negative emotion yourself, mm. it it puts you on the back foot. Do you know what? You you, the longer you leave it, as well, the worse it it gets as you, exactly. you know, develop your cognitive function. Do you know what you're describing? Oh. A snowflake. Well, yeah. I know, but this is you can't aim for that. I I, I just don't think that's a healthy place to be on a, a related note the uh, scottish hate crime bill passed today or yesterday it's the, the new hate crime legislation that's been going through being debated in scotland it's passed today the new crime of stir this is the the wording stirring up hatred stirring up hatred is a crime okay good how you know how do you define this? It's just nonsense, isn't it? Case law, and, isn't it? And um, they uh, tried to put amendments forth to make this not applicable in your own house. That was put down. So you can be guilty of a hate crime. Stirring up hatred in your own house. In your own household? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Mental. Mental. But, you know. I don't know. It's the new normal. It is the new normal, yeah. 
We uh, we haven't talked about the big uh, Oprah interview this week. Thank God. Uh, I, I, I watched it. Well, I saw the opening credits. Did you watch it? And, uh, well, I saw the opening credits, and then I woke up at the very end. Oh, it was in your in your middle sleep. It was. Yeah. So yeah, I missed it. I assume it was all fine, and, and everyone loves uh, <laughs> Harry and Meghan, and it's it's all great. I told you about the uh, when we were gaming on Wednesday about the conspiracy angle to this. Oh yes, oh, yeah, yeah, teased yeah. us, didn't you? I said it I'll wasn't say. the it wasn't the obvious conspiracy that my wife told me about the. Um, oh, what was that angle? Deflecting the the media from um, the sweatless creep um, onto Meghan, basically. Andrew. So putting out someone was feeding stories to the press about Meghan making Kate cry. And you know all the rest of the other stuff, um, so that they weren't reporting on Prince Andrew being uh, alleged paedophile and Gislaine and all the rest of it. That's all gone yeah. quiet, hasn't it? Gislaine is yeah. still under, in custody. Exactly. That's um, completely plausible to me. That's plausible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the angle I've heard is that essentially the firm wants Harry out. Wanted him out anyway. Yeah, because they may feel that, well, he's the son of Diana Spencer and James Hewitt. <laughs> no royal blood there. He isn't one of us. All oh, right. We need okay. to get rid of him. No lizard blood. Yeah. It's not it's not part of the family. It's not part of the firm. That's that's an old an old conspiracy theory, isn't it? The Hewitt link. Well, it's related to the Markle thing. That they've played this situation. Right. And played Megan. Well to drive this wedge between Ooh. Harry and the other royals. The other thing that was, I like that. <laughs> I, the other thing I heard about this was um it was Matthew Wright. Do you remember the right is it the right stuff it was called? Oh, yeah, the right yeah, show? Yeah. So you, you don't do that anymore, does it? It's what someone else but anyway, um he was on something and he said um what he can't believe about this whole thing is how much press she got while she was, you know, our royal or whatever she was. And then um, versus uh, the amount of press that, again, Prince Andrew's had for his things, his car crash interview that was awful. There was quite a lot of press around that. He promised loads of stuff in that. He's not done any of it, he said, mm. which is true. So he said, Testify you know, like, and give it evidence. Not, yeah, not, yep. not done any of that. No. Because, you know, he's obviously had a tap on the shoulder and said, hang on a minute, you fucking idiot. You'll be arrested for something. Um, and the other thing as well was, like, the bullying claims with Meghan Markle. How about fucking Pretty Patel? How much press did she get in comparison to her? And she's had to pay off her fucking chief of staff 300 grand with taxpayers' money. Mm plus how many other members of staff that she's fucking pissed off and have also had payouts at our expense. Yeah. It doesn't get the same level of attention as... Yeah, they don't call a pretty the barbarian for nothing. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, you know. Home secretary, yeah. isn't she? Mm. I think so, yeah. Yeah, uh, we, we don't get the full story. There's, I think there's other things going on. Yeah. So. And it, it, it shields us, doesn't it? It gets us talking about her, Meghan Markle, rather than all the other issues with 
Government. No, it's all the it's all the distraction. It's political exactly. theatre. It's like the Piers Morgan storming out. That's that's yeah. not fucking real. It's not real life. I'm sure he already had his deal signed with GB TV or whoever it is. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's, it's propaganda. Government mind control. <laughs> three million. Sorry, he was on three million quid a year apparently at ITV. Piers Morgan. That's it's more than Lineker, isn't it? On match of the day. Ah, yeah, I think he's yeah, just over a million. His pay's gone down on loads actually. Good. You get more in the on the commercial channels because of advertising. Yeah, and they don't have to publish um, salaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you, if the license fee, if BBC was commercial, it would cost you five hundred pounds a year. The report came out a couple of weeks ago. They did some report and they aggregated all the stuff that BBC puts out. They said if we had to put this, if we're doing this at a commercial level, you would have to pay. I think it was four hundred and seventy pounds a year. Well, no one would pay it. So oh no! Yeah, the yeah. argument is mute. Mm. But anyway, I've got an interesting um, anecdote about Harry from our mate Malin Baker's YouTube channel. Okay, because um, Malin used to work for business in the community, and there was a royal visit. From from uh, the prince, and okay, I found, this, found this interesting. The organisation I used to work for, business in the community, had the Prince of Wales as its president. And one time, Harry came to visit because his father wanted him to learn more about his charities. Now, all of my information on this is second-hand. BITC and I had an unspoken understanding I should be kept well away from the royal stuff. But the palace advised BITC that in order to keep the young prince's attention, it would be better if they could arrange to have a presentation given by younger female members of staff. And if... They wore short skirts, all the better. To my disgust, that was arranged. I know he's grown up a bit since then, but as far as I'm concerned, it seems as though he's married the woman he deserves, and good luck to him. Whoa. Yeah, that last comment was a bit spicy, wasn't it? I don't know where that came from. He must be. I think he's an ardent royalist like you, Ben. No, he's the exact top. He's he's, he's not. That's why he was kept away from this presentation is like not a fan of the monarchy whatsoever yeah but that uh, yeah that comment was a bit off color <laughs> for malin but it was an interesting story about the um i've taken it out of context so you know the link will be in the description for the whole video if you want to watch that video that malin did his news roundup but yeah the uh better get some young females in short skirts to give the presentation just to keep the young prince's attention i can't believe that they did that how long ago was that mm. like 10, 20, I mean, can't Even be that much. this, you know, in the 2000s, you wouldn't have thought it. Hey, just, hey, fucking, them two piss me off anyway. Because I, I always bang on about this, but there's no fucking way either of them fucking clowns with the fucking D, C, and B in, like, fucking, what did they, like, art, something else shit, and something else shit would end up, it was a fucking Apache helicopter pilot. <laughs> Who with an A in art, a D in, like, maths or English, and a C in something else ends up as an Apache helicopter pilot? Royal privilege. Yeah. White male royal it's privilege. Just, you know, they can, that's what, <laughs> about them two, that's what pisses me off the most, is just, you know, well, I, want, I fancy flying helicopters. All right, sort it out. I think the thing that annoys me is that they've left the royal family it seems under the pretense that they don't want the immediate attention and stuff. 
And then, oh, oh right, yeah, you're talking about then uh, Meghan and Harry yeah. starting the podcast and then doing the Oprah interview. It seems like well, they're trying well, to make yeah. a career out of the That's public the profile position, isn't it? Yeah, that they've got themselves in. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. I don't really care. Not really no, interested. I, 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 this is the other thing: is you get drawn into it, don't you, by the tabloids and the media? But he's like, in reality, he's sixth in line to the throne. <laughs> you know, so. Prince it's, Charles it's, has to die. William has to die, and his three children. And then, is it him? Where's Where's Andrew in line? Oh, God damn. <laughs> <coughs> oh my God, we've gone long tonight. Yeah. So, um, so what? Well, no, that's just I'm still a bit angry about them flying helicopters. <laughs> I was just going to say something. If else you want to fly a helicopter, Matt, you can. I just think it's bollocks that mm. they, 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 they got to do what they want, but, you know, or they give their life in service or whatever. Yeah, but the thing that they want to do, not, you know, as a squaddy the rest of his life. Uh, yeah, but, you know, security risk, PR, all the rest of it. I don't care. They have to be shielded. Well, in, Didn't one of them good. famously serve on the front line briefly? Yeah, Harry did, didn't Harry, he? Harry, yeah. Yeah. But and then he went back and retrained as a, an Apache helicopter pilot, and he went back as a pilot, I think. You can't have them be captured or anything, can you? That's the no. thing. They have to be shielded, wrapped in cotton wool to a degree. Well, yeah, but then Williams does search and rescue, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Or did? Yeah, with the Navy. Mm. The Coast Guard, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Well, I've uh, I've left the, the biggest story to last. Mm-hmm. Should we finish on this? The big, the big news, the biggest story of the week. I'm, I'm sure you've heard that uh, Donald Trump is now Earth's representative for the Galactic Federation of Light. Wow. Hello, my friends. This is Alien Contact D. Linnell Anderson here with you guys with a special edition episode of An Alien Tuesday. And today, today's message will blow your mind. We got the best news we've received of 2021. And that, my friends, is Donald Trump has just met with the Galactic Federation of Light. And he was honored to become president of the Human Committee up on Galactic Federation of Light. I know the video says he becomes uh, president of the Galactic Federation of Light, but I meant to say the Human Committee, that division. So we're going to get into what that means in today's episode. But before we do, I just want to encourage everybody to hit the the subscribe (laughs) button. Subscribe if you're new. Smash that like button. (laughs) As I say, subscribe to survive. I got my old channel deleted. Now I got to start from scratch. So if you hit that button, it would mean the world to me because I covered it all from New World Order, Illuminati, extraterrestrials, conspiracy, a lot more. Yeah, hit the notification bell. Smash that like button. Yeah, Uh, I, I, I heard this. I wasn't aware. Happen to a nicer guy, exactly. Yeah, right then. Should we fuck off on that note? Yeah, I'm done. I'm spent, it. it's gone late. We've gone long. Ooh. Yeah, it's a three hour of that, I think. Yeah, just read the... Sorry, yeah, Terry, Terry, God Terry damn, love love you've changed me. <laughs> yeah, it's intense. Yeah, read the standing orders, read the standing orders, read them and understand them. Right, I've uh, shit the bed. I don't know who's coming on next week. I've forgotten. Uh, Dr. Mary Helen? NDEs? 
Yes. Ooh, near death experiences. Yeah. That'd be Horizon. great. Compare compare notes with uh, Ian Lyons, previous guest. Yeah. Right then. We'll fuck off into the night. We'll conda forever. Chris Yavalon. Epstein's still dead. <laughs> Epstein's still dead. Do you want to make a phone call? Go for it. I don't mind. Bring it on. <laughs> 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 Fucking vegan. I can't have children with chest feeding. Oh. Uh, toss. Toss it easy, mum. I can't save you if you're not wearing a face mask. Hey, man. And a woman. This is such a crock of shit. It also holds plural, call pluters accountable. With the most ambitious environmental justice agenda ever. The dwarf, the current, the great, the cunt, the cripple, and the mother of beasts from hell. Come here, goosey big. Communist. The... Like a judgment day in Terminating mode, like.